Welcome to the Anything Goes podcast, the best geek and pop culture podcast broadcast from Long Island, New York. I'm your host, Timothy Rooney, and we're back with a new show, and we're talking about something very different today. Instead of reviewing just one topic, we're going to be talking about several movies, and in a very specific manner, we're going to be talking about it in a list form. As you can tell from the title, we're doing our top 15 favorite horror movies, and of course I said we, because if it was just me, I don't think anybody would want to listen to that, not even myself. And so I have a guest with me today, and he's a uh, returning guest, and I'm very thankful for it. He is the host of Real Fans for Real Movies podcast, as well as Holy Badcast, and the very new Disorder, every Disney movie, when they talk about every Disney animated movie starting from Snow White, moving on forward. And that, of course, is Mr. Andy DiGenova. Andy, thank you for being a part of this. Hey, Tim. Thanks for inviting me back. I appreciate it. No problem. I'm real, and it was funny. As soon as I knew this topic, I wanted to do. We were talking about our top fifteen horror, fifteen favorite horror movies, because this is something you and I have messaged back and forth about whether it be certain horror movies or certain horror sequels. And I'm like, you know what? There's only one person I know who would get so geeky about horror movies. And I knew you'd be the perfect person for this. I love this topic. I am glad you invited me. It's always fun. I mean, I'm a horror geek like you, so it was fun making a list. Uh, and plus, it's July, which for me means it's time to start thinking about Halloween. Of course. I mean, like, for horror fans, it's horror 24-7, 365. But, however, of course, once you get past 4th of July, it's like, all right, there's no real big holidays other than Labor Day if you really want to get um, – or Roman holiday, if you want to build up towards, like, the next big holiday is, of course, Halloween, something that's in America that everybody really celebrates. But let's not uh, beat around the bush anymore, so let's jump into our top 15 favorite horror movies right now. Before we actually talk about our 15 favorite horror movies in general, um, I wanted to actually, I thought about this actually earlier today, and something that, that I thought you would be interested in talking about is like, why, uh, why do you think people like us are attracted to horror in the first place, and what initially drawn, drew you to horror movies sp- specifically? That That's a great question, and I... I don't know why we love horror. I I can't answer that greatly other than it's exciting and it's fun to be scared, or at least it's fun for some of us to be scared. Uh, I've always had a fascination with it. I've always liked haunted houses. I've always liked horror movies. For me, it's exciting. I'm a weird kid who I actually, even to this day, I like when I have nightmares because it's exciting. Uh, so, like, if I have a nightmare that I'm being chased by Freddy Krueger, which I grew up having nightmares about Freddy Krueger chasing me, most kids would wake up screaming. I woke up being like, oh, my God, that was so cool. <laughs> I was still scared, but it was cool. So, I don't know. I just think there's something in our blood as horror fans that, that for us, that is a fun kind of excitement. And it's fun to uh, 
I don't know, to just dabble in the dark side, whether it be through movies or, or experiences or haunted houses or whatever that may be. Uh, it's just something you're born with because there are people who are like, I don't understand why being scared is fun. And I'm like, I don't I don't know either. But for me, it's really fun. I look forward to it. I love it. And so I was I was fascinated with horror movies even as a kid. And I started watching them pretty young and me and my siblings we all loved horror movies and so we rented horror movies and we watched them on videotape and our parents well at least our mom would take us to horror movies because she knew we liked it so i remember her and my stepdad taking us to child's play and uh we were young we shouldn't have been seeing child's play <laughs> but but fortunately yeah they they were like ah who cares you know they, they want to see this movie about a killer doll we'll take him to this movie so we just were always into it and i you know as a kid, I had this huge six-foot inflatable Freddy Krueger from Spencer Gifts that was in my bedroom. And we were friends with uh, with the guy who owned the video store in our town in Illinois, and he gave us this big Freddy Krueger standee from the video store. So we had Freddy Krueger in our bedroom, which would explain the nightmares. Uh <laughs> But, like, that's how much we were into it is that there was – you know, that we, we wanted – scary stuff in our bedroom or in our house all year round so i like i said i i I don't know if i have a great reason why psychologists have tried to explain it and they say oh it's it's a way to confront death in a safe way maybe that's true for me it's more subconscious than that i just like it it's just fun for me oh yeah and like like i it's kind of like for me, like how I define it, because I've been asked that question several times throughout my life is like, why you like that? And I'm like, and I always like one of the questions I ask them is like, do you like roller coasters? And some people say, yeah. And like, it's kind of that same kind if that's a parallel that I like to use. I'm like, it's that kind of adrenaline rush, adrenaline rush within a safe manner. It's cathartic. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's so much to go into a movie theater and being able to get the wits scared out of you or see like a slash villain cut up a bunch of people and you just cheer along while because you're just like oh this is amazing and it's it's a way to exercise all those kinds of stresses and all the things that can be bogging you down in your everyday life and you feel better about it it's like because like for me personally i I don't i don't drink i don't do drugs or anything like that but i like going fast i like heavy music and i love scary movies it's how i like to get my charge going and i'm like Last night, like, I was watching the the third Insidious movie, and I'm like, I'm going to watch it with the lights off, because I haven't done that in a while, and I'm like, I haven't seen this movie since the movie theater, so I thought, let's see how I'd feel about it. I turn off the lights, I turn on the movie, I'm like, 15 minutes in, I'm like, I should have left the lights on, because I'm getting really freaked out, but the lights are just <laughs> across the room, and like, I can't make that, and like, it's too unsafe, like, I just have to deal with this from now on, and it's just, ever since I was a kid, I was, like, just really drawn to it, and... I'll get into like how one of the first horror movies I ever saw is actually on this list, and I'll get into that um, a little bit later. But since so Andy, you're the guest here, I'll I'll have you start off. What is your number fifteen favorite movie? And the kind of format that we're going to be doing here is we're going to be doing naming the movie, when we saw it, uh, what's our favorite scene or scariest scene to us, and that's sort of the kind of format is and why this movie kind of makes the list and why it's in that position. So Andy, what's your fifteenth favorite horror movie? All right. I don't know if I remember all those questions. You might have to remind me. It's okay. Uh, But uh, I will say before I made this list, you know, and we even had some conversation about what constitutes a horror movie. Yeah. And 
that is, of course, up for debate. So there are certain movies that I absolutely love that, for me, I don't really consider them horror movies, although other people might, and I can't say those people are wrong. It's just the way I interpret it. So a great example is Jaws. We talked about Jaws. Jaws yeah. is one of my favorite films of all time. It's in my top five. I didn't put it on this list because, for me, Jaws isn't a horror movie. It's a uh, adventure thriller, I would say. But right. I, for, me, for me, I wouldn't put it in the horror category, so it's not on this list. So I kind of tried to stick to my definition of what I consider a horror movie when I made my list. Uh, so having said that, honestly, this number 15 was the hardest for me to choose. Because it was it was torn between two different movies, but I made the choice, and I'm going to stand by it, and that is the first James Wan's Saw, the really? very first Saw film. Huh. It's very funny. It's something very similar for my 15th, but go on. Uh, so I saw it when it opened. I remember seeing the trailer for Saw. I remember going, hey, this actually looks like something very unique. This actually looks cool. I'm actually looking forward to this movie after seeing the trailer. And then it surprised everyone and became this huge sleeper hit because it's a really great movie. The problem with Saw, and it's a problem with a lot of the movies we're going to be talking about, is the subsequent subsequent sequels kind of water down what started out as a really great movie. So I think that Saw is great in that it was very unique. It's stylishly shot by a really great filmmaker and spoilers you're gonna hear you're gonna be hearing a lot of james wan in this list i'm just a huge james i'm a huge james wan fan i think he's terrific and so you're gonna be hearing his name a lot but uh, this was his you know big debut and boy did he deliver and he delivered it on a very low budget which goes to show that creativity can absolutely overcome any budgetary restrictions i think it's smartly made it's unexpected it's exciting it's scary and it keeps you guessing throughout just not even just who is saw which of course is one of the big questions but it's also how are they going to get out of this? What's the next clue? And where is that next clue going to take them? There's fun in that mystery aspect of Saw. And so a uh, huge kudos to them. And then you can't deny how it changed horror. And some people would say it changed horror for the worse. I think that some good came out of it and some not so good came out of it. But you can't deny that it changed the face of horror. And it all started with that little million-dollar movie, Saw. It's funny. Because, like Two things that came to mind is, like, one, somebody – coined this phrase uh, i forget in an article uh, about james wanted the man can't help but launch franchises yeah that's very true whether it be saw whether it be the conjuring and the conjuring universe whether it be the annabelle movies that we having the, the nun or the what was it the tall man or whatever the hell the uh, the uh weird creature that's in conjuring 2 that's getting his own spinoff and now he's obviously he was part of the fast and the furious series and now he's doing aquaman so the man just just springs out uh, th uh, film series throughout like that's what he does and I also love the fact that like it was shot like like you said it was very low budget and it was like maybe like 13 14 days like shoot like under a million or mil like a million dollar budget and like and it's funny there's one phrase I always keep in the back of mind when it comes to my own filmmaking and it's from a person that you and I have like well we have kind of like the similar opinion on Rob Zombie it was one of the commentaries, I think it was for House of Thousand Corpses, he said, limitations make you more creative. And, or it was either that or the Devil's Rejects-like commentary. And I'm like, which is true. I mean, it just, you just kind of wish his output was more consistent with Devil's Rejects and rather than his other movies afterwards that were kind of like, oh, yeah, you peaked kind of early there, guy. 
I mean, it is true. Limitations do make you more creative. Uh, I, I, I'm not a fan of any of Rob Zombie's films, if I'm going to be honest. So uh, you will That's not fair. be hearing his name on my list. Uh, yeah, but but the, point, the point stands. <laughs> um, and, and yeah, I mean, what James Wan was able to do on that budget and launch this franchise, and I think that he never meant to. You know, it was it was supposed to be this self-contained, grimy, scary little thriller. It's almost like Seven, but turned on its ear. You yeah. know, uh, which which I loved about it, too. I thought it was really creative. So, yeah, I, I, I love that first movie. And it's easy to forget how good it was because you start thinking about the endless sequels that, you know, James Wan and Lee Wan-El had less to do with. Right. Um, so, yeah, do you have, like, any final thoughts you want to say about the first Saw? Uh, no, that I mean, that's it. I It, it beat out the other one just because I think of, of how uh, how much it did change change the face of horror right well awesome and so moving on so so my 15th my favorite 15th favorite horror movie is actually a movie that came out around very similar time to so i think a year later it's actually eli roth's hostel now i know a lot of people give hostel flack because of the term torture porn but if we go back to the first hostel a lot of the Torture is really done off camera. It's a lot done with sound and everything. It's your own imagination filling in the blanks. And what I really enjoy about Hostel is that you don't... It's a slow burn for like the first 45 minutes to an hour before any real, any real terror comes on. It's just following these three guys back, back through Europe. And you feel like... And you, of course, the audience hones in on the character Josh because he's like the nice guy out of like what you kind of consider like the frat boys that are doing... That are going on this gallivanting through Europe. And you're like, ah, oh, these guys are a bunch of jerks. Why are we following them? And you're like, you think Josh is going to be fine, but they pull a psycho and they kill, him, they kill him off halfway through the movie. And you're like, all right, I guess I'm stuck with these characters from now on. And it's one of those like kind of like movies where for me that... Like there was a lot of horror movies that were kind of handed down for me from like like older si- like friends, older siblings, or everything, or just kind of by reputation. This movie came out when I was kind of like a burgeoning horror fan, and it really unnerved me. And it was kind of like it's one of those things. Like I know I'm going to be going hopefully within the next year to be going to visit Europe uh, for vacation, and this movie's in the back of my mind. And my my favorite scene from this movie is actually none of the torture itself, but it's actually. Uh, I believe the character Paxton is trying to get out of the facility where this is going on, and he runs into the American businessman who presumes that he was another guy who just killed another person and asks about all the gory details, and you're like, okay, this guy's more frightening than any other any other devices we just saw because he's just completely unhinged, and you as an audience member feel very uncomfortable, as well as the ending where the Paxton gets the, uh, the Dutch businessman gets his comeuppance from him, and you as an audience member just end up cheering at the end. And that's why I really enjoyed the first hostel. Second one is still as it's, I enjoyed the minutiae that it kind of explores, but not as much is not as effective as the first one. Nice. I enjoyed the first one. It's, I honestly have only ever seen it once, but I remember liking it. Uh, and you're right. It, it takes its time. It's kind of like, if I remember correctly, it seems like the first half is kind of like raunchy teen comedy, yeah. and then it takes a turn into uh, into dark horror torture and whatnot. Uh, but yeah, I, I enjoyed the first one. I I am I actually I kind of enjoyed the second one too. If I'm if I'm being honest, they were both okay. Um, they're not in my top fifteen, but I enjoyed it. 
Yeah, I, I mean, like, I, it was... Because I really enjoy Eli Roth's work. I know he's a kind of controversial figure amongst, like, movie fans. I did think he's just a... He got in with, like, an, an okay movie with Cabin Fever and just became buddy-buddy with people in Hollywood, and that's how he had his careers go on. But if you look at his career overall, like, he's done a lot of stuff independently. And his, like, first real big studio movie is not... It's not coming out until this year, which the Death Wish uh, remake with Bruce Willis, which I'm curious to see, but we'll have to wait and see what happens with that. And so, Andy, what's your number 14 favorite horror movie? Number 14 uh, I chose for pure, unadulterated fun, but it's also a really good movie in its own right. And uh, you, I think you, well... It's one of many sequels I'm going to talk about because it seems like horror, I guess one of the pluses of horror is because they make so many sequels, sometimes those sequels end up being pretty darn good. And so this sequel is actually a third film, and it is A Nightmare on Elm Street 3 Dream Warriors. Hmm. I had a feeling this was going to be on your list. I love this movie. (laughs) Uh, And, uh, I, I mean, I already mentioned, like, as kids, me and my siblings, for us, Freddy Krueger was like our superhero. We just loved Freddy Krueger. He was our guy. We thought he was the coolest thing in the world. And this was uh, one that we owned on VHS. And so we watched Dream Warriors over and over and over and over again. And we loved it. And what I loved about it is that it was a Nightmare on Elm Street horror movie, but it also was kind of a superhero movie because all these different interesting characters end up coming up with superpowers and so i used to draw comics of the dream warriors going on adventures and whatnot because i thought they were it was like a such a cool little like superhero team taking on freddy krueger so aside from it being just a great sequel to the original film and you get the return of nancy which was sorely missing in the second film Mm. you get to meet all these new characters you can care about uh and they push the dream conceit a little bit further and just have a little bit more fun with it and really blow up the world. An argument could be made that this is when Freddy starts going too far into comedy, and he does, but some of those lines are so great, I can't be too mad at them. No. Uh, like, welcome to prime time. I don't know, do we swear on this? I don't know. You, by all means. Uh, yeah, welcome to prime time, bitch. Like, Yes, it's funny, but man, it's a great line. So he still is funny in this one, but he still remains scary. He's still a threat. And I love the new characters. So yeah, for me, Nightmare on Elm Street 3 Dream Warriors is one of the best horror sequels uh, because it really builds on the first film and adds to it and enhances it. And uh, I think it's great. Yeah, and it's funny because... Dream, like I always have Dream Warriors, the song by Doc in, in part of my exercise like playlist, and that pops up every now and then. And I'm just like, and I can't help but just think of like, of course, the line like "Welcome to Prime Time, bitch," or whenever like I forget the super punk the the super punk chick when he's like, "In my dreams, I'm beautiful," and she pulls out the switchblades, and it's just so many moments throughout Nightmare Three that I really enjoy. And somebody was who's not like a Nightmare on Elm Street fan looked at like the entire series like he's like so which ones should i watch and i'm like all right if you want to break it down if there's like there's only like if you had to watch a few of these movies that you watch one three and west craven's new nightmare i feel like those are like the only th- like if you had to only watch the three from that series like those three would be the ones yeah i think that yeah yeah i can't really disagree with that if you're gonna if you're gonna watch it you know you've got it i'd even go with just one and three i like new nightmare but it's you know it's uh, different 
it's not necessary the way, but yeah, I mean, if you're if you're just gonna stick to them, you can do just uh, a one and three. I I I like the whole franchise just because I like Freddy Krueger, but I think that the best movies are are indeed one and three. Yeah, and didn't actually Freddy become a superhero in Part Five at one point? He did, but that's where it's pushed just a little too far. It's just a little bit much. It's fun, but yeah, like one of the kids, he's a comic book artist, and so in his dream, he turns into his own superhero, and then Freddy turns into a superhero before he kills him. It's That's where we're, we've gone full-on cheeseball Freddy Krueger. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so, it, like, yeah, like, good choice right there. And so for my number 14, like, I wanted to have at least one international horror movie on here, and I'm just like, all right, do I choose, like, I was thinking, like, in my back of my head, I'm like, all right, do I choose, like, Pierce Jackson's, like, Dead Alive slash Brain Dead, or do I choose something from South Korea or Japan? And I'm like, no, 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 let me go Italian. So Dario Argento's Burr with the Crystal Plumage, which is his first movie, it was kind of like the prototypical, like, giallo film. And the reason why I, I really love it is because it's like, one of the things that Dario Argento was kind of, you could say, criticized early in his career is he was kind of like an Italian Hitchcock, but I don't see that as a bad thing. I think because he, he uses how Hitchcock's techniques in that first movie, and it's all about a wrong man who saw something he shouldn't have, and he kind of became a template for a lot of his movies, and it's just told with so much style and so much finesse. For a first-time feature filmmaker, it's really impressive, as well as Ennio Morricone's score, I think, is beautiful and haunting. And, like, hell, even Tarantino ripped that score off a little bit for Death Proof at one point. And so, yeah, so I was like, all right. And I, I almost went with, like, Lucio Fulci's Zombie. I'm like, no, 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 let me do one Argento film. So, yeah, if, if nobody's – if you haven't had a chance to see it, I'd say highly recommend it. I have not seen it. So, yeah, I'm just going to have to take your word for it. <laughs> yeah, I knew it was going to be like, all right, so like – like the easy answer, I could have been like Suspiria or Deep Red, but I was like, no, no, no. Let me be, let me be a little hipster about it, and let me go for an obscure movie in this catalog. <laughs> as I push up my Buddy Holly glasses and drink out of a mason jar and go to Williamsburg, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Perfect, perfect. <laughs> All right, so moving on, what is your next uh, horror movie on your list? <sighs> Number thirteen. This is another sequel. Ooh. Uh, and uh. Another sequel directed by James Wan. Hmm. This is The Conjuring 2. Really? Yeah. So I couldn't decide between The Conjuring or The Conjuring 2. And the, whenever I have a, a hard time deciding, I basically go, okay, if I was holding them both in my hand, which, and I had to choose one to watch right this second, which one would I choose? And I would choose two. I think one is a great movie. I love it. I think I like two just a little bit better. Um, so yeah, for me, The Conjuring Two is terrific. It's great that he 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 made a sequel to The Conjuring, and and for me, made it just as good or even just a little bit better. I think that there's more scares, there's uh, a little more heart, and what's and what's going on with the family. Uh, I one thing that I think James Wan does so beautifully, and it's shown here, and I think it's done well in both Conjuring films, is he makes you care 
about the people going through this ordeal because that way when scary stuff happens, it's not just a cheap thrill. You're actually emotionally invested in what's going on with these characters. And I think he does it great in both of these films. Uh, for me, Conjuring 2, like I said, I just I just like it a teensy bit more, and I think maybe it is because uh, I think more scares are packed into it, so I'm greedy like that. <laughs> and and for me, uh, I'm not an exorcism guy. I don't like – like movies about exorcisms just don't really do it for me so you will see no exorcism movies in this list for me spoilers um two (laughs) spoilers so yeah it's it's just for me it's just not my thing so i like the climax of the conjuring 2 better than the conjuring 1 where it's an exorcism and i'm like i've seen it i've seen exorcisms this was more unique to me of them taking on this demon and everything so uh yeah i think the conjuring 2 is awesome and it's so scary and as you pointed out um what a great like mix of scary ghost characters that are in this movie from the nun and uh, the slender man or the thin man. Yeah. Uh, whatever that thing is. And you know, the, the old man uh, there's, there's a lot. And that's something I think James Wan does in a lot of his movies is he gives you a variety of scary characters to, to mix it up. So it never gets stale. And uh Yeah. I thought The Conjuring 2 was great. Plus, bonus, it's a Christmas movie, so you can watch it at Christmas time. You, I had that. That was that thought was ringing in the back of my head. I'm like, it's a Christmas movie. That's why he's put it on his list. That's a bonus <laughs> point. It's absolutely a bonus point. But even if it wasn't a Christmas movie, I think I like it better. And like one of the cool, thing and that's about- no bad word against the first Conjuring, FYI. Just like I'm not ripping on the first Conjuring. I love the first Conjuring. Yeah. Um, it's just I just I had to make the tough call. Right. I mean, one of the cool things about Conjuring 2, which I really enjoy, is that one of the things that Ed and Lorraine warned as people were heavily criticized for their claims throughout their career. And I like how this movie kind of confronts that, where where they, they show Ed and Lorraine on talk shows being kind of like put in the hot seat about the things, especially with the Amityville horror story. And, of course, at the end of the first Conjuring, they tease that. And I remember seeing that in the theater. And it's, of course, Amityville being no more than 20 minutes away from, he, from me here on Long Island. Everybody in the theater kind of pops for that because it's kind of part of local legend around here. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's like one of those pilgrimages that you must go. You must go to the Amityville Horror House. And I love how, and like you said, like in Conjuring 2, it opens up with the Amityville Horror investigation and the recreation of what happened that night. And then, then the cold case about the family, like... We don't know if this family is actually being possessed or not, or if this is just the qualm, the, 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 a little girl just begging for attention, which was a huge factor with the Enfield poltergeist. I mean, like, you look at the famous photo of her in, like, the, um, being levitated in air, one could criticize that, oh, she's just jumping in there. She's not being levitated by something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I did love I love and that was the other thing. I loved how they wrote in the skepticism to the movie. Right. Uh I thought that was really well done and even acknowledged the you know, the potential hoax of this. I've seen some people take it to task being like, Oh, it's not accurate. Um and I'm like, Yeah, you know you know what's not accurate? Every movie based on a true story. Yeah. Every single one is not accurate. I don't care. What I care is do I like the movie? Did it scare me? Did it interest me? Did I get invested? Yes. So I'm not too worried if, you know, like if the nun wasn't really a thing, what matters is the movie. So I, I that doesn't bother me in the least. What matters is the movie. I think the movie is great. Um, and I did like the way they, they, they acknowledge the, you know, the hoax or 
you know, basically saying, yes, like it could have been a hoax, but at the same time, there are other explanations for that. I thought it was very clever, so I dug it. And that scene in the water in the basement, oh my god. <laughs> that, and that's just and that's something Juan does so great is he can just set up these terrifying scenes and just get you every time. Even if you've seen it before, he's so good at that. Yeah, and like even like I broken down like cuz I'm uh, because like I said it before, I am a filmmaker and what was it, the guy who's directing the Annabelle sequel is actually running a contest for like people to make their own conjuring esque horror movies to be sent in, and what the grand prize is, you're brought out to Hollywood to meet with New Line Cinema to discuss possible, possibly a project. That's what I'm, I'm hoping to aim for. And so I sat down with like a a paper and pen to figure out how does James Wan set up his scares, and literally just kind of broke down like shot by shot, sound by sound, like what does how does this work on, on a mathematical level because it's obviously very precise it's not just like oh i'm just gonna film anything and just we're gonna chop it together and hopefully it comes together no there's a real science behind that and mm-hmm. especially like you said the war scene in in this is and i think even better one of the, or at least for me is when lorraine goes into uh, her husband's study and the nun's shadow walks across the wall mm-hmm. then behind the actual portrait and then the portrait comes juts out from the wall for some reason, like, I don't know, that just, like, you know that's going to happen. The audience knows that, and you're like, I, I-, I can't turn away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I agree. He-, he just, he knows how to build suspense. He knows how to pay it off. And you're right, like, if you want a master class in how to scare people with a film, James Wan should be your professor. Yeah. Study Study his movies, so... I'm glad. I'm glad you like The Conjuring too. You know, some some people uh, were like let down because the first one became such a breakout hit. For me, I was like, no, it delivered. It's ju- it's just as good as the first. Gotcha, gotcha. All right, all right. And moving on to my number thirteen on the list, it has to be like I I can't I kick myself for because I didn't have this on the list before, but it's John Carpenter's The Thing. And. Hmm. And the reason being is because it's one of those movies when I saw it when I was in high school with friends. It was like heard about it from my friend Renee's like older brother. Like, oh, you gotta watch the thing. My friends and I had a sleepover watching it in his basement. And the scene that really clinched it is the defibrillator scene where, <laughs> and it just the chest opens up and then the chest closes down on the doctor's hands and he rips them out and then the monster comes popping out of it. After that, I was like, all right, and I'm actually wearing my John Carpenter's The Thing t-shirt right now. I was like, you know what? I need to wear a horror t-shirt today just because of the occasion. And I'm like, and I'm going through my t-shirts. I'm like, oh, The Thing. I'm like, this is perfect for today. And it became such an important movie to me. Is like even when I was up at college, it was a stormy night because of upstate New York. Of course, we're going to have oh, uh, ter- terrible winters. My friends are like, ah, oh, we don't want to. There's nothing on TV and there's no sports going on right now. What should we watch? And I recommend hey, let's watch The Thing. And they're like, we've never seen it before. I'm like, oh, all right, guys, turn off the lights. We're watching The Thing. And we loved it so much. And it was kind of like I was able to sit in the back of the suite and have all my friends in front of me and just not just watch the movie, but watch their reactions and watch how the tension built on their body language and faces to seem like, oh, just wait for what happens to that dog. You think you like that dog now? Just wait. And then it became such a part of our kind of our popular culture, at least amongst my friends, that when we started our deck hockey uh, team up at school, we named our team the Alaskan Flamethrowers. We were trying to get Antarctican Flamethrowers, but we couldn't get 
and that Antarctica on the t-shirts we got. So it was like, all right, we're gonna have to go with Alaskan. So because it was close enough. And so we, the thing became just a, a huge part of our lives at college and still remains to this day. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm not ready to talk about this movie yet. Oh, okay then. All right then. All right. So then what is your next favorite horror movie then, sir? So uh, we are up to 12. Yes. So number number 12 is what I think is a modern classic. Uh, I almost didn't include it because it's kind of horror, but I think it's horror enough that you can get away with it, and that is Cabin in the Woods. Ooh, good call. Cabin in the Woods, I think, is brilliant. I could write an entire thesis on it. I don't have time to, so I never will. But... <laughs> Well, now it, here's your forum. Yeah, it is. Uh, God, I just think it is one of the smartest, most clever and interesting and just straight up entertaining horror comedies in history. I love how much they pay homage to the to the genre and how much they tweak and play with the tropes of the genre. And some of the smallest details I missed like the first few times I saw the movie that I caught later and later. And it is so well layered. Um, I think that the reason I almost didn't include it is because anytime things are about to get too horrific, you cut to the control room and it stops being scary and it starts being funny. And so the, the intensity never keeps up. But what I loved so much about this movie is when I went to see it uh, and I went and saw it in the theater, it starts and I knew enough about it to, to understand that there was this control room thing happening. I knew that. But even then I wasn't prepared for the twists and turns the movie was going to take. And I thought, okay, great. We're going to see this story in this cabin and we're going to see these guys manipulating and controlling the situation. Okay, cool. I get it. But the fact that they kept doubling down on the concept to get the movie to the place where it's just all out insanity by the end. And then the way it really ends with this, uh, explaining the sacrifices that had to be made. I think it is brilliant. I think it's, and I think it's a brilliant commentary and a beautiful celebration of the horror genre. So for me, the control room is the filmmaker. The control room are the people making horror movies and the sacrifices is, they sacrifice these fake characters for the sake of the darkness in all of us as a race. And it satiates this part of us that needs to see something scary or need to see something exciting because that keeps us from giving in to our dark urges. I think it's a brilliant meta thing about what horror movies do for us as an audience. I love it. And then just the little tiny things throughout about how, uh, like like the moment that comes to mind is there's a moment where she has the knife and they send a shock through the knife so she drops it. Mm. And it was one and that was one of those things I missed the first few times because it's so quick and it's so subtle. And I was like, "Oh my god, that's that's brilliant." Like because of course in every horror movie when the hero drops the knife as an audience we we're like, "Why would you drop the knife? What are you thinking?" And in here they force her to drop the knife or the way they they send pheromones out to to make them have sex because in a horror movie you've got to have sex before you get killed. So 
it works as just an entertaining horror comedy and it's funny and it's cool and it's interesting and the characters are fun but then it works on a whole nother level if you want to dig deeper about what it has to say about horror movies and the genre as a whole and uh and its relationship with its audience i love cabin in the woods i think it's a masterpiece and it's funny, like, somebody's brought this up in a YouTube video that the ancient ones are the audience. They're us. And if we don't get X, Y, and Z in a movie, a horror movie specifically, we'll get upset and and we would we would never want to go back to watch horror movies. That That's what people have projected what the ancient ones are, that they are us, the audience. That, oh, and that's exactly it, is, is that... The ancient ones are us, and and, it, and again, it, it satiates this innate bloodlust that lives in all of us by going to see horror movies, and it you know, and it keeps civilization in check. And uh, I, I love that. I yeah, I think that's so cool. Do you have a favorite monster that they show in the movie? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I love the monster mash scene in the, with the elevators. I mean, how can you not? It's amazing. Yeah. Uh, my favorite probably is the werewolf, just because I'm a sucker for werewolves. Gotcha. And I think they, they designed a really cool werewolf for that movie. Yeah, I think it may be. I think it may have like the unicorn is un- is unique, and like having somebody impaled with a unicorn is I thought was I lost it. Like I was laughing for a solid five minutes after that because I was not expecting that. And I think it has my favorite, possibly my favorite clown in a movie. Because like like that woman's like unloading her pistol into the cloud and it's not doing anything. It's not slowing him down. He just keeps laughing as he charges towards her. Ah, oh, that's nightmare fuel for you. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 awesome. And and and, I, and same thing. Like I love like all the all the different monsters in their cages. It's like a filmmaker's bag of tricks in horror. Is like oh we can go this way, we can go that way. And I oh yeah, it's so good. Nice, nice. All right, and so for my number 12 is actually uh, um, a modern, I guess you would say a modern horror movie. It's actually It Follows. Oh, good. Yeah, and it was one of those things I was like, I heard like rumbles about it and it somehow came to like my one, one of like the three multiplexes that are in the general area of me. And I'm like, okay, my ex and I, we went to go see it and we're like, all right, we kind of heard it's like, it's kind of like a weird, like, retro 80s movie. Or, and we don't know. It's kind of like a slasher movie, but we don't know what the deal is. And then how the movie unfolds, that it becomes like a supernatural slasher movie where the slasher is determined by an S- pretty much an STD, where it's almost like the joke is with slasher movies, like, you have sex, you will die. This one, it made the most literal possible that if you... Have, or if you are promiscuous in any way, you will be marked for that unless you just move it on, as long as you keep the chain going. And and I love the conceit of, like, if that person, the next person you have sex with dies, that they it goes back up the chain and comes back at you. So you always are in constant fear of it. And I'm just like, uh, you can write you can write allegories like, oh, it's an allegory for AIDS or any other kind of STD or STI out there. But it's told, and it's like, I think it was Jamie, I think, on the Real Fans group, or it was, it was Jamie or Guy. It's like, it's the best John Carpenter horror movie not directed by John Carpenter in terms of mm-hmm. style. Mm-hmm. And especially, like, the score, I, I love so much. And the fact that the monster can look like anybody, 
And my favorite scene is when the the friends are out at the beach thinking they're safe, and you hear somebody what like in the water, but you don't see them, and you see one of the girls, like the main character's friends, like walking up to him, and you're like, all right, yeah, she's just walking up to her, and then you realize in the foreground, the friend is actually in the water, and you realize that's not her friend behind her, that's the monster, and they're completely unaware of it, and she's the only person who could see him, and. I don't know, just like the rules that they set up and how they play out and it's told with such finesse that I just, I can gush about it for another hour, so I'm going to stop right now. I'm glad you brought this one up because it didn't make the top 15, but it was on the list as I was narrowing it down uh, because I I I love this movie as well. And um, I agree, it is absolutely the best John Carpenter movie uh, in years. And it's just, weird that he didn't actually make it um but it's it's such an homage stylistically to what carpenter did uh the the score and the pacing and the suspense and just the way it's put together um it's it's scary it's cool it's really interesting how they uh how they play with time period in the movie that's that caused a lot of discussion and then yeah how how you decide to read the meeting i i don't think it's about stds personally i think it's about our own mortality. I think it follows is death. And no matter what you do, eventually it's going to get you. And I think that the movie is about the end of childhood. These characters are no longer children and they're about to become an adult. And part of becoming an adult is realizing your own mortality. And it's going to follow you until it eventually gets you. And you just have to learn to live with it. And I think to, for me, that's how I, how I read the movie, but it's beautifully directed. It's beautifully acted. The music is terrific. I love that they didn't over-explain the monster or creature or ghost or whatever you want to call it. I love that you get the rules, but they don't tell you what it was or where it came from. Because, again, uh, it's it's life. At least that's, again, the way, the way I interpret it. So I love this movie. I'm glad it's on your list. And, uh, yeah, it just missed mine. Do you think the main characters kill themselves at the end, let themselves be taken, taken over. Or do you think they just like acknowledge the fact that it's always going to be there with them? I think, I, I think it's the latter. I, they do. I don't think they kill themselves. I think the whole movie is about learning to live with the knowledge that you're not going to live forever. Right. Okay. All right. Cause I never, I never thought of it that way, but like that, as you say that out loud, I'm like, that makes sense. But then like, like just the idea of like, Oh yeah, our own mortality. I'm just sitting here. I'm like, Oh Yeah and contemplating my own mortality. Well, thanks Andy. Well, and I, and I also think, there. Oh, Oh, I, I live with it every day of my life. And uh, maybe, <laughs> maybe it says more about me than the movie, but I also think that's, that's what sex means is it's another rite of passage from childhood to adulthood is sex. Yeah. And I think that's, that's where the, where sex comes in. The fact that sex is what passes it on. Again, I think, I think STD is too easy. And I think that there's not a lot more there uh, as, as an allegory for STD. But I think that once you have sex, it's another threshold into adulthood. And then, you know, and then you understand that it's, it's following you. Right. And, and I could break down the whole movie for, with all these other examples of, of things that, uh, you know, that, that support why I think that's the case, but we have, we have 11 more movies to talk about. Or right. 22. <laughs> <laughs> and it's funny because, like like you saying, it's kind of a mixture of time periods. It almost seems like the Napoleon Dynamite of horror movies because you don't know when exactly it's taking place because it's a mixture of weird clothing and technology that's going on at the same time. 
Yeah, exactly. And because it's like, oh, you think it's retro, but then like the one like uh, female friend looks like she has like a kind of like a Kindle thing, but it's actually a sea a seashell. And you're like, wait, how does that compute when everybody else is driving like the Oldsmobile that you see in Evil Dead? Like this doesn't make sense. Right. I know it's uh it's really interesting. Um, right. yeah. But yeah, your next movie, sir. Uh, next movie here is uh it's another sequel. Huh. And my number 11 is the classic sequel. It's another comedy horror, Evil Dead 2. Ah. Dead, Dead by Dawn. And it's another one. It was a little fuzzy because I'm like, it is very funny, but it's horror. It, I think it's. I think you can you can really safely place it in horror. This is another one of those movies that we owned uh, as kids, and me and my uh, brother and sisters, we watched it over and over again. We thought it was the funniest thing ever. Uh it's so wacky. It's so funny. It's so gory. When I was little, I didn't realize it knew it was funny. I thought it was just bad. I just was like, oh, this is so ridiculous. And then as a grown up, you're like, oh, no, Sam Raimi knew exactly what he was doing. It's supposed to be funny. I think it is. Uh, it's one of the best horror comedies ever made it is endlessly entertaining bruce campbell is terrific as ash the monsters are great the gore is great the gags are great and uh the fact that you end up with your main character uh cutting off his own hand and then having a chainsaw hand how can you not love that like that's <laughs> that, that's just so great and uh yeah i love evil dead too so it's uh it's right here at number 11 it's it's funny like, like i was describing evil dead 2 to a friend of mine who's never seen it before because he's not really a horror fan and he's like he's like he was asking me like isn't evil dead the one where like he has a chainsaw for his hand and he's like yeah and i'm like how's that happen I'm like well his hand becomes possessed he lops it off it crawls away it flips him the bird and he puts the chainsaw on his hand he's like, <laughs> he's like well Huh. And I'm like, you want to watch it, don't you? He's like, you, you really have to see it to, to appreciate how good it is. <laughs> yeah. And then it's like, it's like, as Sam Raimi and everybody's admitted, it's a love letter to Three Stooges comedy through the lens of a horror movie. Mm. And like all the pratfalls that he, that Bruce Campbell does and all like when the hand turns on him and it's trying to kill him and smashing plate at the plate over his head. And you're laughing, you're screaming, you're having... A grand time watching it. Yeah, absolutely. It's I mean, it's genius. It's uh, something that only Raimi could pull off. It's it's just yeah, it's terrific. It's a it's a classic. Yes, sir. And so, any final thoughts on Evil Dead Two, sir? No, love it. If you don't, if you if you haven't seen it, it's describing it will not do it justice. You gotta see it. Evil Dead Two is amazing. Yeah. All right. And moving on to my next movie, and it's actually another classic. It is Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. Hmm. Uh, yeah. And I know, like, some people say it's not real. Like, some people say it's not really a horror movie. I'm sorry. This is a horror movie through and through. Even though it's, it's, it's it has its moments throughout, like, it just, like, you have those horrific moments. But it's, maybe it's not even just the, like, I remember, like, the first time I saw it, it's like my, my granddad got me the, Alfred Hitchcock Universal Collection on VHS for my birthday when I was a kid, and I remember I, I put on I put on Psycho like one time and I'm watching it, and it was I'm like 
and I'm watching, and I'm watching it up until like it gets to the famous shower scene that I, I had heard about. Watch it, and I'm like <gasps> petrified. And then my dad's like, "Did you take a shower yet?" And I'm like, "I'm not taking a shower for the rest of my life. I'm the, how am I supposed to do that after seeing that movie? I'm sorry. I'm, it's gonna be best from here on out." <laughs> and it's become like every horror movie, like every somewhat slash movie, either good or bad, owes a little bit to this movie. And a lot of horror movies owed a lot to Alfred Hitchcock because of his use of cinema and defining cinema through his entire catalog. And I love the fact that you think of like his movies, whether it be like his bigger movies, like North by Northwest, which takes takes place across the entire United States, United States, I should say. But then you think of Psycho, where you had a limited budget, shot in black and white, and it's like, all right, like we said before, limitations make you more creative, and those limitations do not hamper Hitchcock's creativity. And the scene that gets me the most to this day is when Arbogast is walking up the stairs to a Nor- um, a Norman Bates, uh, Mrs. Bates' uh, room, and the door slowly opens, and he does not know it. And then it's, it cuts that high-angle shot above the staircase, and um, Mrs. Bates comes out, stabs him, and he falls down the flight of stairs. Recently... There is a company here or a promotion here on Long Island called Retro Picture Show, which I've posted on the Real Fans group a few times, where they show double features of horror movies, usually Friday or Saturday nights. And this year they did show Psycho and Psycho 2 back-to-back on 35mm film. And there's two women in front of my friend and I, and they had never seen Psycho before. And just like we said before, uh, I said before about the thing, I I was watching their reactions just as much as I was watching the screen and had them popcorn flew in the air when that happened that scene and i was so giddy i was so happy for that moment i was like ah just vicariously living through their like terror right there because i'm a weird person like that well and it's awesome when a movie that old can still elicit that type of reaction yeah and uh go on no i'm Please. Oh, 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 I thought you were going to say something, but yeah. So, uh, Psycho, I love it to this day, and it is like I, I almost put on, I almost put the birds on this list, but I like Psycho a little bit more. But so, yeah, I mean, Alfred Hitchcock, Psycho, classic. And I realize now I have two posters of Psycho up in my room now. I re- just realized that I never noticed that before, huh? Anyway, awesome. Yeah, it's kind of like I just, I just had my. Michael Keaton Batman moment, like, you know what? I don't think I've ever been in this room before. Just had that <laughs> weird realization right there. Anyway, your next movie, sir. Uh, yeah, my next movie, number 10. Yes. Another another horror comedy, I guess. Um, but I did warn you that I'm a sucker for werewolves, and so my number 10 is an American werewolf in London. Mm, good choice. Uh, just another movie that I, I loved as a kid. Again, I, I love werewolves. I thought this one was great. This one's very funny, but it's really, really scary. And I remember, uh, of course, the epic and, uh, iconic transformation sequence just blowing my mind as a child. I also remember in the end when you see the werewolf and he's in the dark alley right before, you know, right before they shoot him, spoilers, uh, Mm -hmm. I remember that part and 
because you could just barely see him in the darkness of the alley, I remember as a kid, any time I looked down a dark alley, I was afraid that, that werewolf was there. So this was a movie that stayed with me and scared me even when I wasn't watching it as a kid. But it's very funny. It's very scary. It's really entertaining. They build a great world. They have fun with London. Uh, when I was in London last year for my honeymoon, we had to go to Piccadilly Circus because I had to see where the werewolf went berserk in an American werewolf in London. And I have a picture right there by the movie theater where uh, where they go to see the porno movie. So uh, I, I, I love this movie. I think that uh, there's a lot of great ideas in there, especially with anybody killed by the werewolf uh, being cursed and then haunting the werewolf and uh, a very tragic, bittersweet ending, which I appreciate as well. And I always loved that how John Landis uh, played with the mood and the tone. And so during this horrifying transformation, um, playing, uh, is it Bad Moon Rising, I think? No, that was earlier. It's another, it was, another moon song that's going on throughout. Oh, God, what is it? Oh, um, no, because Bad Moon is like when he's just pacing the apartment back and forth. Is right before, right before yeah. that. Okay. Um but then and then at the end, right after he dies, you, you end up with the, the doo op version of Blue Moon. And so uh just really well made, very cool. And then I mean the reason that we have a, a Oscar for best makeup effects and special effects. So uh great film, another classic. Love it. It's funny. I almost had. I don't have a werewolf movie on my list. I almost did, and it was all. It was a toss-up between this or The Howling, because I, from a makeup standpoint, like I love Rob Bottin, obviously, because I have the thing on here. But I also love Rick Baker's stuff, and I always like back and forth. Like, who is the better makeup artist? Like, which werewolf transformation was better? Like, obviously, American Werewolf in London is the more classic one, and obviously won the Oscar. The problem with the howling ones, like, all right, D. Wallace is watching this thing happen, and she could obviously just walk around him while this transformation takes five hours to uh, occur. And that's the one joke I always have with the howling. But with American Werewolf London, I love the fact that how, like you said before, John Landis plays with tones, and how after the fact that he becomes a werewolf, we get all these weird nightmares. Like, we have Nazi werewolves at one point. Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm hmm. And it's like, like the first time I watched it, like where we have like that dream within a dream, where he's like in the the woods, and you see him with the blue makeup, and he scares the nurse, and or even when he's when it's just the POV of the werewolf in like the the um, when he's uh, in the subways, and he chases down that one guy, and we never see the werewolf itself; we just see it from like the steady cam's point of view, chasing the man down. I love that as a good choice right there. Mm -hmm. alright and so for my number 10 um, very similar to yours like I have to go with the original Evil Dead oh okay and and reason why is because as much as I love Evil Dead 2 and Army of Darkness and the Ash vs. Evil Dead there's something about the the original Evil Dead that just always gets me maybe it's the fact that it was shot on 16mm films so you have that kind of weird grainy tactileness that just leads to that feeling of it. It's kind of like the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre where it has that feeling to it that you're like, all right, this, this is not like something's a little off kilter here. And the fact that not saying that it should be celebrated or anything like that, but like when we see a woman attacked by a tree, you don't often see that in horror movies. And I understand <laughs> like when 
Sam Raimi was brought to trial in England to defend the the contents of the movies when the video nasties were going on, and he found that to be indefensible. That's why he never brought that back for Evil Dead 2, which is totally understandable. I, I get that. But very much like Cabin in the Woods, like it was kind of like the template that every Cabin movie is based off Evil Dead some way, some way or fashion. And my favorite moment is that is when Ash is the only one left alive and everybody else is starting to laugh and scream at him and he's starting to lose it. And like his girlfriend's like just like laughing over and over. He's like, shut up, shut up. And it's just hitting her with a shotgun. And it's not doing anything. And he's going bonkers at this point. You're like, wow, like I don't know how I would lose. I'd probably lose it too. And I think another favorite moment is obviously the very end where he thinks he's He's fine and everything, and he's the camera come from behind the cabin, through the back door of the cabin, through the cabin, through the front door, and then takes him out, and then, hey, you hear about it later on, like, yeah, we just trapped the camera to the motorcycle, and then we accidentally ran over Bruce Campbell at the end, like, well, that's just goes to show you how safe Sam Raimi was with his actors to get that movie made, <laughs> and then you see how Sam Raimi, like, develops here, and how he took those skill sets to later movies, whether it be The Quick and the Dead or the Spider-Man trilogy, you think of Spider-Man 2 when they're supposed to be operating on Doc Ock to get the arms off him and how the arms kill all the nurses and doctors in the in that room. Mm-hmm. Like, that's pure Evil Dead right there. And I love that scene every more and more every time I see it now that I've become a fan of his earlier horror movies. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I, I, I loved how there were those moments in Spider-Man where you're like, oh, Sam Raimi going back to his roots, which is awesome. Uh, yeah, I enjoy this one as well. I, I chose two over this one, uh, but uh, it's a good choice. I think it's definitely a little more scary than than silly like the second. Um, but, yeah, I, I dig it. It's a good one. Oh, yeah. And I love how like the acting is a little cheesy at times. Like A lot of horror movies are, but I love the moment where it's like, Ash is like shaking his buddy Scotty, like Scotty, we gotta get out of here. I'm like, dude, he's got a twig sticking out of him. Don't shake him like that. You're gonna hurt him even more. But of <laughs> course, in the moment, it just it it looked better on camera. But uh, yeah, so Evil Dead, love it. And what is your next movie? What is my next one? Up, oh, it's another sequel. Jesus, uh, man. <laughs> Uh, well, what can I say? When well, you asked me about sequels, but honestly, I think this is my last sequel. So, okay. Uh, no, 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 not the Buster Chops or anything. I was just not expecting this many sequels to be on your list. So, yeah. So I had Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Conjuring 2, Evil Dead 2, and then, yeah, I think this is my final sequel. Okay. Uh, this one I love so, 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 so much, uh, and that is Wes Craven's Scream 2. Oh, I think Scream 2 is just as good as Scream. I think it is one of the best sequels ever made. I think it is so great how it is a horror sequel about horror sequels uh, and how much fun it has with that premise, aside from just being so incredibly intense and scary. Uh, I feel like everybody was so surprised and excited about the success of scream that all of that energy can be felt in the sequel. It just seemed like everybody was operating uh, at the top of their game on scream too, because they were all just like so excited about how well the first film did. And I think that it is great. Um, 
I think that the the set pieces in it are terrific. I like that it's packed with scares. I love the cast. I love the characters. Uh, I still get nervous, and it's it's probably the biggest sin of the movie, and I feel I'm conflicted about it because I think it's an amazing sequence, but it also is very sad, is Randy's death. Uh, yeah. I, I always expected them to bring him back somehow because he's us. Randy is the movie nerd. And but that sequence works so well. It is so intense how you think he is absolutely safe. There is no way they can get him and they get him. And it's so oh, it still drives me nuts. Or the moment towards the end when Dewey is stuck in the sound booth. And so or no. Yes. Yeah, you're good. Dewey's Dewey's in the sound booth and Gale is in the control room, but they can't hear each other because they're in the sound booth. And so like this, that intense moment where she has to watch Dewey get attacked and possibly killed. And there's nothing she can do because she's behind that, that, that plate glass. And then it leads to this great silent chase in a sound booth where they can't hear each other. Like so clever, so many great things or the, I mean, I could I could go through every scary scene in this movie and tell you how much I love it. And what I love the most was something that I wasn't sure how I felt about it the first time I saw it was the uh, the reveal of Mrs. Loomis. The first time I saw it, I was like, huh, I don't know how I feel about that. But the more I thought about it, the more I watched it, the more I, I how brilliant I think it is. I love how they set it up earlier by mentioning Mrs. Voorhees from Friday the 13th. I love how it pays homage to a mother and a son with Psycho. Um, and I think that Laurie Metcalf just gives an amazing performance at the end of that movie. Also, I didn't see it coming from a mile away, so I give it a lot of credit for that as well. So... For me, Scream 2 is one of the best horror sequels of all time. It's one of the best sequels of all time. It gives you everything you love about the first one and even more. And I think that Wes Craven's direction as far as the scary scenes is he's at the top of his game in this movie. I love it. And then, oh, I see. And then even going back to the very opening in in a movie theater full of horror fans, um, cheering on the actual death of one of the oh the audience members. Oh, it's amazing. It's so scary. Again, you're in public. You should be safe, and you're not safe. I I, I love this movie. Yeah, and like it's it's funny. I'm gonna be talking about Scream very soon. Um, and going off that point right there, the opening. The opening is like, it is a total lifting a mirror up to the audience. Like, oh yeah, you cheered when people die in the movie? This is what can happen to you. This is what you are acting like a bunch of fools. And I love how that moment where that realization, because everybody thinks the opening is a stunt, because they have like, everything's been so, so gimmicky for this secret preview of Stab. And then once they realize that, oh, Jada Pinkensmith is not a actor doing this, that she's actually dying in front of them. And... I love the moment when, like, everybody takes off their masks and realizes, oh, wait, crap, somebody should do something. And the music is perfect. And I guess, like, the only problem is, but I guess with, one could argue the movie peaks too early with that sequence. Hmm. I mean, and Randy's, like, this whole suspense of Randy's death is, is, is spectacular. But, like, one could argue that it could peak too early because of all the tension that's built up there. And I know some people had issues with Mrs. Loomis's uh, reveal. I never had a problem with it. And I even love when they bring in Cotton Weary at the end. And it's like, mm-hmm. and it's kind of like a Sophie's choice. Like, oh, what am I going to do here? Is he going to like, this woman 
that Sydney ruined his life here, and now he has a chance to get away and get his revenge on her, and he can get away with this scot-free? Like, it, it does lead to doubt. Like, would this guy do it? Would he kill her? And I love that moment at the end. And, yeah, I mean, I think you're right. This could theoretically be Wes Craven's best-directed movie. I mean, it's 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 one of, if not if not the. I I do love it that much, and I do. You know, I know that I think some people didn't get on board with Mrs. Loomis, but I think that's what I loved about it was that it was unexpected, but it still pays great homage to the history of horror. And you bring up a great point about Cotton Weary and how he's always around, and you never know what to make of him, uh, because yes, he was innocent. We learned he was innocent, but there's still something creepy about him. And I love how Wes Craven played with that. And in the end, you learn that just because he's not a murderer doesn't mean he's a good guy. No. And Leo Schreiber walked that tightrope with precision with that. And that's why I mm-hmm. love his performance. And I lo- even love that moment where when Sydney gets the threatening email or the uh, uh, message while she's in the library, she steps away from the computer while the cops search all the monitors in there to see who's messing with her. And Cotton pulls her to the side, away from the cops' uh, point of view. And they had that kind of confrontation on the stairway. And you're like, oh, this guy is a really scary person that we should not trust him. He's kind, of, He's got a chip on his shoulder and theoretically could be one of the killers. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, so yeah, good choice right there. I love it. It's so good. And the conversation about sequels, it should go without saying, but it's amazing. The whole uh, in the in the classroom earlier in the film, because what I loved about it was that whole conversation was almost verbatim to conversations I've had with friends over the years of like sequels that have surpassed the originals. And I love I love Randy's whole monologue about uh, sequels ruined the horror genre. It's it's terrific. And it's it's funny because I've always brought up the fact that, like, oh, yeah, Godfather 2, Terminator 2, Aliens, like, those three sequels have always been, like, in, in contenders to be, to surpass the originals right there. And I'm like, and it wasn't probably until, like, the, the first time I saw this, and those that that's the first time I heard that conversation. And probably, like you, had that conversation. Like, yep, uh, sequels can be good and they can be bad. I mean, how many times, like, we brought up sequels in the real fans group, or, like, and how, whether it could be it'd be diminished returns on whether however long a series goes for mm-hmm. and uh, yeah final thoughts on scream 2 it's amazing like for <laughs> me for me one of the best sequels of all time gotcha all right and it's funny my next one is the original scream ah nice and this one has a real special place in my heart is because this is the first horror movie i ever saw and and like when I say that is because my sisters were um babysitting me and they're like look after your brother and everything like that and I don't know if they rented Scream but they wanted to watch it and of course me being the annoying little brother is I want to watch it, I want to watch it like you're gonna get nightmares I don't care I want to watch it like all right fine you you asked for it and. The opening sequence with Drew Barrymore and then how she ends up getting gutted and hanging from a tree. I had a pillow up until my eyes, like it covered my nose. And after that, when it cuts to Sydney on the computer and my sisters look back at me like, are you okay? And I, I was stunned quiet for like a good 10 seconds. And I was like, wait, what? What'd you say? And ever since that point, I've been obsessed with horror movies. 
And so this has a real sentimental value for me. And like like we mentioned with Cabin in the Woods, is a love letter to horror movies, and especially to Halloween, which is a movie that both you and I have a great uh, affection for. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I look like I, there's not a bad performance from anybody in that, and it's it's something that my friend Mike and I will quote often. Like we, we will just speak in like scream quotes and everything. Like at, there's so at one point, like him and I were supposed to uh, go out to a concert. I go up and knock on the door. He opens the door, and I'm like, "Did you really put the liver in the mailbox? Because I heard you put the liver in the mailbox, like there's spleen or pancreas." Is like how Randy teases uh, Tatum at one point, and he slammed the door in my face. He's like. Well, I guess that's what I get for quoting Scream that early in uh, the morning for him. Um, so yeah, and my favorite scene has to be the the opening because you never, you didn't, never, nobody expected Drew Barrymore to die. It's like because how the marketing was for that movie that everybody pushed that. Oh yeah, Drew Barrymore's on the poster and she's the biggest star out of everybody on there, with the exception of maybe Courtney Cox be, uh, because she was like this is like maybe post first or second season of Friends at this point. I'm not too sure. And you're like, all right, Drew Barrymore's going to be fine. And you kill her off like that, and then you have the horror trivia, which is a game that I've always, I, me and my friends have played. They're like, all right, what's whatever obscure trivia when it comes to horror movies, something I've done has become part of who I am, and that's why I love Scream. And I know one of our listeners to this show and a, fr- and a friend on the Real Fans group, Justin Lee, he's obsessed with this movie, and I knew I would be remiss not to mention him when Scream was brought up. Very nice. Yeah. I'm not ready to talk about this movie yet. Okay, then. <laughs> All right, then. So what is your next horror movie, then? So moving on to number eight, this is as classic as classics get, and that is George Romero's original Night of the Living Dead. Ooh. Uh, this movie is is amazing. Uh, truly a classic, truly a masterpiece. Created the zombie genre, uh, and... Uh, I remember watching it as a as a kid. Uh, I was on TV, I think, and getting totally sucked in. There was something about the claustrophobia of this group of misfits, uh, all trapped in this house together, just trying to survive. That really, really grabbed me. And there was something so scary about that. Is like all you've got is this house, and you have to somehow survive in just this house and, and how the zombies just kept on coming. Uh, the fact that it was black and white just makes it that much, uh, cooler. You would think that as a kid, I, you know, you're a little more resistant to black and white, but, uh, it didn't bother me in the slightest because I think that the, just the movie itself was so strong and the premise was so strong and the directing was so strong that it didn't matter that it was old, uh, which is what I would have thought when I first saw it. Um, I just immediately got sucked in and I just find it extremely intense that, that feeling of being trapped with these people. Um, I got to give a, a little shout out to the remake. Cause I think the remake is great as well. Uh, it doesn't, I feel like it doesn't get enough love, but I think the remake is a great movie too, but I got to hand it to the original because of its place in horror. And just cause of still after all these years, just what a great and intense and scary movie it is. Uh, so night of the living dead. Nice, nice, good choice there. Um, it's funny, like it's like one. This is one of the movies where it's kind of like a kind of a landmark part of my life. It was kind of like uh, one of my old girlfriends. Like we, she came over. I had the house to myself, and we. I was like, 
what was it? Things became into it rather quickly, and I had to put a movie on the background. This is the movie I put on because she was a horror fan and everything like that. So this became uh, kind of like a staple in my life. Like, oh, yeah, this is where I was watching it during whatever. And it's one of those movies where once you became, become more aware of what is done for the entire zombie genre, you're like, okay, wow, you see this. It's kind of like, it's like discovering the Beatles for the first time. You see where a thousand ships were launched from it. Mm-hmm. And then you see, like, all right, then you think of when you become aware of how how the movie was made in, like, low-budget sense, and then you think of, like, all the, whether it be intentional or unintentional political things that were made about that movie, where you had a the lead actor was African-American, and you something that you do not see mm-hmm. that often. And then you have, like, it's never stated, there's not an ethnic slur thrown in that movie, but there's that, un, there's that tension underneath the surface. You're like, there is something more about that. It's not just because he's in charge. It's just because you don't like him. Like the main antagonist um, is like, other than the zombies, it's like you don't like him is because he's an African American guy, and you don't want to take orders from him. And just how that tension builds and builds until it comes to a, it comes to a head at one point, and then mm-hmm. main character, even though he was technically wrong, the the basement was the safest place. Ironically, he didn't want to listen to that, and then you think he's gonna be fine because the the posse is here and the cavalry is over just over the hill. Like ah, oh, we're gonna be fine. Everything is gonna be great. No, bam, he's mistaken for a zombie. He is killed and he's dragged out with meat hooks in grainy uh, still photography as the credits play. And you're like, and you walk out and you end the movie like wow, that was not how I expected the movie. You thought you were gonna have a happy ending and. Sadly, you don't. And yeah, the the ending to... is a gut punch. Because you want him to live, you want him to succeed. Because you've gone on this journey and you see everybody else fall by the wayside at that point. You're like, just give him a break. Hopefully, he gets out of this. And sadly, he doesn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, he's such a great character, and you're you're with him the whole time. And to see uh, how unfair, you know, it ends. It's uh, it's heartbreaking. And that was one thing I loved about about the remake was how they really drive home the point of of the salvation was in the basement. And uh, I feel like in the original, it's not it's not as strong because uh, he still should have been fine. It's just they they shot first. But yeah. uh, in the in the the remake, the keys to the gas tank are in the basement, and so it, it was more about how he his own pride ended up killing him. Right. Yeah, and it's just. Yeah, the remake, I really love. Tom Savini directed the remake, correct? Yeah. Gotcha. Uh, yeah, remake, I only saw it, I mean, like, once or twice, I need to rewatch it. Hopefully, around Halloween, I'll, I'll probably pop that in. But, uh, yeah, so, Night Living Dead, good choice, sir. Thanks. All right. Uh, moving on to, this is, what, number eight? Yeah, I believe that's the number we're off yes. at right now. Okay. Uh, I needed to have at least one vampire movie on here, and there's only one choice for me, and it has to be Catherine Bigelow's Near Dark. Hmm. And I know it's not a typical horror movie because the main character becomes a vampire at that point, and you go with this journey with him, and it's not like a scary, like, ah, it's not like Lost Boys where you're fighting the vampires or Fright Night, but I'm a big sucker for westerns, and I love when movies mix genres, and especially... And it's this kind of Western, it's not like a John Wayne Western. This is like a Sergio Leone spaghetti Western. 
mixed in with a vampire movie. Like, all right, that alone, you got me. But then you have three of the, like probably the best actors from Aliens in there with with Lance Henriksen, right. <laughs> Bill Paxton, and Jeanette Goldstein. Like, all right, you sold me. It's gonna be perfect. And my favorite scene in the movie is when they go into the bar and they tear everybody apart. And you just know it's gonna happen as soon as they walk in there. And you're just like, these guys have no idea what's gonna hit them. And I love the fact the guy that they really mess with um, actually shows up in Terminator 2. He's the one whose clothes are stolen from by Arnold in that movie. Ah, okay. Yeah, and I'm just I'm, – because I didn't realize that until later. I'm looking at him like, why do I recognize him? And then pull up IMDb. I'm like, oh, yeah, he was in Terminator 2. Okay. But, yeah, and, and I kind of like the fact they never say the word vampire in it and – I just think it's a gorgeous movie, and yeah, I, I really dig. I really dig it as a vampire movie, and I knew I had to have one on here. So that's my thoughts on Near Dark. Nice. I, I've only ever seen it once, and it was relatively recently, but I certainly enjoyed it. And and I, the first thing I said, I was like, "Oh my god, it's a freaking aliens reunion! That's amazing." Uh, but yeah, I remember liking it, but I, it's just not one that I, I grew up with, so I don't know it as well as some of the other ones. Gotcha. And it's funny, like, actually, in the background, there's a movie theater marquee that's actually showing aliens at that point, too. Oh, nice. Somebody pointed that out to me, and that's like, it's one of the things I can't unsee now. Cool. Yeah, so what is your next movie? Uh, my next movie, number seven, it is The Return of James Wan. Uh, number seven is a little sleeper I like to call Dead Silence. Ooh, good call. I love this movie, and it's a movie that was sadly ignored when it was released in theaters. Nobody went to see it because everybody thought it was a Saw ripoff because of the way it was marketed. Number one, you can't rip it off. You can't rip off Saw if you were the guy who made Saw. So it's the same director. So he's not ripping off himself. Number two, if you actually watch the movie, it couldn't be more of a polar opposite to Saw if you tried. It is the exact opposite of Saw. Whereas Saw is this gory, grimy, gross, intense torture porn, for lack of a better term. This is a classic, old school, moody, atmospheric ghost story. It's just an old-fashioned ghost story, and I love it. The directing is beautiful. The music is amazing. The score to Dead Silence, if, you, if you're into scores, especially if you like spooky scores, check this one out. Um, the directing is great. All of the design work of the world and the visuals are great, like the, the creepy old mansion and the creepy uh, cemetery and the creepy old theater that's sinking into a lake and – all of the design work is done beautifully. And then the main ghost, Mary Shaw. I love Mary Shaw. She's so scary. She's so creepy. Um, she's terrific. I love how they took something that could have been cheesy, a ventriloquist dummy, and they just had so much fun with it and just made this really awesome, scary, creepy, atmospheric, old-school ghost story. I love this movie. I've recommended it to everybody because I'm like, ah, oh, it's 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 – grossly ignored check it out you won't be sorry it's terrific um i will also though say if you haven't checked out dead silence and you're going to based on my recommendation good it's great uh but 
check out the rated cut. I know that sounds weird. Usually people prefer the unrated. The unrated cut is stupid. They add this stupid special effect to the ghost that ruins it. Um, check out the theatrical cut. It's actually better. But Dead Silence is awesome. Mary Shaw is awesome. James Wan is awesome. I love this movie. Nice. nice. I really, I really enjoyed this one, too. And I only, only have two, two words, words about it. It's Donnie, Donnie Wahlberg, because I, I love, love, love this movie. movie. As, mm-hmm. as, as a cop, cop, cop following the character in this. He's a total non-believer of Dead Silence. silence. And when that realization happens in there, in there, in the back in the of the theater, theater, all the doll dogs start to start coming alive. alive. It's like, shoot one, shoot one, shoot one, shoot one, because they're all caught alive at that point. point. And yeah, and, yeah, and, and just like you said before, said before that, that James Wan can't, can't help but make scary movies. And like you said, it was a classic, classic ghost story. story. Just told the big This is like almost like his universal monster movie at this point. Exactly. That's exactly what it is. He was doing his classic Universal Monster movie, and for me, it works great. Again, uh, if I've heard negative things, it's that it's too slow paced and there aren't enough kills, but that's what, that's the story he's telling. It's not a, you know, it's not about racking up a high body count. It's about having fun with suspense and spooky atmosphere. And I won't spoil it, but like the revelation near the end, you're like, Oh wow. Like the first time I saw it, I was like, why didn't I see that before? And it's like, all right, now I want to rewatch the movie just to see how that, how that happened again. And so you're not going to be disappointed with that. So, I also recommend Dead Silence. Awesome. Yeah, last year I was at a Halloween convention and Lee Wanell was there and I got a chance to 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 talk to him or ask him a question about Dead Silence and uh and uh he was like he, he seemed embarrassed of it and I was like don't you be embarrassed of Dead Silence. Dead Silence is awesome and he's like oh I'm so glad to hear you say that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um but yeah, he's he's James Wan's writing partner, and he co-wrote Saw, he co-wrote Dead Silence, he co-wrote The Conjuring, he co-wrote Insidious. Like he, they, you know, they do the horror movies together. And uh, I was happy I was able to tell him how unappreciated Dead Silence is. Yeah, and you kind of feel bad because you, ha- it was like some people have written it off as like the sophomore slump for James Wan and Lee Wynell. and you kind of and you feel bad for them at that point because like. Because you have a massive success with Saw and it turns into a franchise. It's like, all right, how the hell do you live up to that? And they do have something that's 180 degrees away from Saw. And people are like, mm-hmm. eh, it's not so good. And that's why James Wan went off to do Death Sentence to prove that he's not just a, a horror filmmaker. And I say, anybody who likes vigilante movies, check out Death Sentence. It's a great movie with awesome performances from Kevin Bacon and John Goodman. I highly recommend that. Excellent. That's like the only James Wan movie I have not seen, and I really need to remedy that. I'm a little embarrassed to admit it. Ah, uh, I mean, it's like I can almost put that on. Like, I think it's based off the same book series that Death Wish was originally based off of, or it's based off the original book. And it's because a very similar premise where family member was killed, guy decides to take revenge on him, and to see Kevin Bacon go from this businessman to become like a monster by the end and becomes a cold blood Kelly becomes the Punisher at the end and how there's never I've never seen a bad Kevin Bacon performance but he really crushes it in Death Sentence nice yes sir and then moving on so like you brought before you brought up Night of Living Dead I'm gonna have to go with 
not Dawn of the Dead, but I have to go with George Romero's Day of the Dead as my favorite zombie movie and my favorite George Romero movie. And the reason being is, for some reason, like, Night of the Living Dead, like, you theoretically could have hope that the zombie apocalypses could be squashed. And even mm-hmm. Dawn of the Dead, it ends on a happy note with them escaping. Sure, like, the, the mall is overrun, but, like, that's like a comic book of a movie and it's kind of like upbeat and it's quirky at times but day of the dead it is it has it has this humor but it's almost humorless it is dark and kind of depressing and like i don't know i think just the claustrophobia being stuck like underground for 95 percent of the movie just really did it for me as well as tom savini i think it's tom savini's best effects in any of his movies i'm I, I know some people are like, no, this or that, or Maniac, or, or The Burning, but I'm like, no, no, no. I think Day of the Dead, I think it's his best stuff, and it's got probably one of the best zombies with Bub as a character. Mm. And I know the score is kind of cheesy. It's very keyboard-driven, like but like I love keyboard. like I love synthwave kind of music, and it could really date the movie, but... Also, like the character of Captain Rhodes, where it's just like he's so he chews the scenery and everything he's do, do, doing, whatever he's doing. And there's so many times that, like, when I've like freaked out or if, like I've how I, I've quoted him just to kind of like make myself laugh. Like, I'm running this now, Frankenstein, and I want to know what the fuck are you doing with my time? And then he takes a deep breath and he says his next line. And I've done that so many times to make people laugh or to make myself laugh because it's just so ridiculous. And it's like, who talks like this? Nobody does. But uh, this guy's supposed to be a superior officer in the military. Like, it's just kooky. And, yeah, I just have unabashedly love George Romero's Day of the Dead. Nice. This is another one that I've only seen once. I liked it. I just it's not one I know backwards and forwards, but uh but yeah, it's for some reason it was one that I missed and I think a couple of years ago I finally Netflixed it because I was like, oh, I need to see this one and good choice. Yeah, and as like I mentioned before with Retro Picture Show, they showed this on thirty five millimeter film back to back with Return Living Dead, which came out at the same time and now Return Living Dead was rated R and Day of the Dead was unrated, so Return of the Dead was released to more theaters, and that became the bigger hit because that was also kind of like a pop, pop like kind of like almost like a punk movie, and how that's almost like the antithesis of Day of the Dead tonally. But it's also like I'd also recommend that for people to do is to if you want a good double feature to put on, put those two movies on. You'll have a great time. Those are two great zombie movies right there. Excellent. All right, and what is your next movie? Next one, it's my turn to talk about John Carpenter's The Thing. Ah. So, number six is John Carpenter's The Thing. This is a movie that uh, I've only grown... I I liked it the first time I saw it when I was a kid, but I've only grown to love it more and more as I've gotten older because it's just a really great, suspenseful, uh, paranoid thriller. I mean, I think it it perfects the, the paranoia that some of these movies have played with, and it's inspired so many imitators over the years, and that ain't bad for a movie that was written off as a failure when it came out. Uh, I love that over the years, people have discovered it and realized what a horror masterpiece it is. I am a John Carpenter super fan. I think that the man is brilliant. Uh, he does what he does better than anyone else, and uh, I think that all of his powers are on display here. It's very unique in its feel. Uh, it's rare that you see a horror movie set in Antarctica. And uh, again, that trapped 
uh, setting really amps up the intensity. And then amazing effects work by uh, Rob Bottin uh, and uh, just some very iconic scenes. You know, you talked about the defibrillator scene. I think that is probably just one of the most mind-blowingly effective scenes in the movie, especially for your first time if you don't know what's coming. Um, But the makeup and effects work, the performances, and uh, John Carpenter's uh, his trademark cliffhanger ending, as he loves to do. Uh, I don't know if the man's ever given us a real true ending in any of his movies, but that's what I love about him is he makes you he makes you work for it. Um, well, I never realized that. You're right. He always always has cliffhanger endings. I'm sorry. Yep. I didn't mean to interrupt. But I'm, I was going through my head. I'm like, yeah, this big trouble, Halloween, Christine. I'm like, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Prince of Darkness, they live. He 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 loves giving you the prelude and then leave you hanging. It's what he does. Um, the Fog, I feel like, does the same thing. Uh, he's into that, and I love him for it. I think it works, and I, I love the way this one ends. But, yeah, I mean, great characters, great performances, amazing makeup, great ramp-up of, uh, of the scares and the intensity, a really memorable creature and setting, uh, makes John Carpenter's thing a bona fide classic. And again, I'm so glad uh, that over the years, more and more people have discovered it, and now it is considered a classic because when it came out in 1982, it was a bomb. And that's heartbreaking to know, but you know, at least uh, it stood the test of time. Yeah, and one of the things that, like, like the reason why it was a bomb is because it was released by Universal Pictures in 1982, but there was also another Universal Picture release two weeks prior to John Carpenter's The Thing. A little movie, you may have heard of it, you may not have it, 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 it depends. I mean, it's just Steven, Peel, Steven Spielberg's E.T. Now, I always wonder, if you saw the gross release from the first two weeks of... Spielberg's E.T., which was not supposed to be a big hit. They, that's why they gave him such a small budget, and that's why they gave him carte blanche to do whatever the hell he wanted with that movie. I always wonder, why didn't Universal push back the thing? Why did they think counter-programming would have worked with the thing? I, I don't understand it. I feel like they should have pushed off the thing to October, where it would have been more successful. I think it would have been, at least financially, been a, would have been... I guess more accepted. Sure, you would still have gotten like the Roger Ebert scathing original review where where he almost referred to Carpenter as a pornographer at that point, which he later later rescinded and wrote a very glowing review of it. But I just wonder what was the thought process in Universal's marketing department to release it then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I feel like at a certain point you are locked in and. If it was just a couple weeks away, at, at that point, they probably already spent so much money on promoting it that they figured, well, it's this is when it's coming out. But, yeah, no one would have guessed that E.T. would have become what it, it became. And then, unfortunately, uh, people were in the mood for warm and fuzzy aliens and, and less murderous ones. And that's why Carpenter would go on to make Starman later on. Yeah, another movie I love. I think that's great. Which I don't think it's ever gotten a Blu-ray release. I don't know if it has, but yeah, I mean, I'm, but I'm, I kind of love every Carpenter movie. I mean, there's a few that I love less, but yeah, I mean, I, I'm like, I'm a big proponent. I even like Memoirs of Invisible Man. I really enjoy. Oh, I loved that one. I haven't seen it in ages, but I loved it. Uh, yeah, and, and going back to like with the thing, I mean, I, I'm surprised I didn't mention it before, but I think my actual my favorite scene nowadays is the blood test scene because it's pure, oh god, yeah, it's pure tension. 
Mm-hmm. And I and I love the fact like when we see like them cut their thumb with a scalpel, like we just saw an alien punch its way through a dude's chest, detach itself, and crawl away as its own separate head. And we don't bat an eye at that, but we see a, a scalpel just cut a thumb, just draw some blood. Everybody freaks out about. <laughs> right. Well, and and that's uh, the perfect example of one of those scenes that's become so iconic that you've seen it imitated so much in other movies or TV from because of that. Oh yeah. I mean like, like the biggest example that comes to mind is the faculty when you want yeah. to see the characters trying to figure out who is an alien and then they're using the kind of like wake up drugs to, to determine who's going to, who's an alien or not. Right. But uh, yeah, so the thing absolutely love and I like, like I, I got a chance. I went almost well over ten years ago. Ten years ago, at this point, I got a chance to go down to the Tribeca Film Festival and got a chance to talk to John Carpenter because he was there, part of a panel discussion, talking about violence in horror movies. And it was like him, the head of Lionsgate, um, and a what was it? A writer of a very strict, like kind of like Christian-based like newspaper in the Midwest. And it was debating on violence in movies, and this was the, the height of torture porn. And they were talking about John Carpenter because, like, you've made violent movies in the past. What are your opinions on this? And John Carpenter, being like the laid back kind of hippie that he is, is like, well, it's just like people want to go see that. That's what you're going to want to do. I got a chance to talk to him, and I'm standing there, I'm like 15 years old, wearing my Reservoir Dogs T-shirt, and I got a chance to make him laugh with my joke and everything. And then, and like the only person who did not laugh was the guy who ran the new, like the newspaper, uh, who was just grilling me the whole time, like. All right, guy. I'm sorry. I, like these movies uh, ruffle your delicate sensibilities right there. And I got a chance to see him perform live when he was doing his him and his son uh, with their band going around the country to see him perform his music live. If if you ever get a chance to see him perform his music live, you're doing yourself a disservice by not going. You have to go see him live. It's perfect to see him blast the Halloween theme or Escape from New York at, at the top of the amplifier levels that they go. Can't recommend that enough. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, I had tickets to see John Carpenter, and I couldn't wait. Uh, and it so happens that it was when I went on my honeymoon, so I did not get to see John Carpenter. <laughs> Ooh, I'm sorry, dude. That's <laughs> uh, okay. I, I, I don't regret my choice, but uh, it's just, of course, it happened at the same time. Right. Oh, man. Anyway, final thoughts on the thing. Uh, I... I feel like I've said my piece. It's a terrific, scary, and intense movie, and I'm glad that it's appreciated for how good it is. All right. And moving on to my number six, uh, gotta go classic horror movie. It's William Freakin's The Exorcist. Oh, all right. And I know people, like, because the filmmakers don't consider it a horror movie. Like, William Peter Blatty, before he passed away, he never considered it a horror movie. kind of considered it a paranormal detective movie, which I can see how it is. But much like it's Night a of, it's a horror movie. Yeah, Come on, they, give they, me a break. <laughs> yeah, they just don't want to be like, oh, I don't want to be associated with that. Like, yeah, and they say Silence of the Lambs is not a horror movie. Like, I'm sorry, guys, Silence of the Lambs is a horror movie. You may want to not want to say it because amongst the Academy and amongst the elites of some Hollywood people that they think horror is one step above pornography. In some cases, it is, but there are times where horror not just executes but elevates the level of cinema how it is and that's how i feel about the exorcist because like night of the living dead the exorcist launched a thousand ships when it comes to possession movies and then you hear about the stories of how this movie was made and you're like 
and what the techniques they use and how live it was done in camera. And then you had, uh, man, uh, Dick, uh, I'm trying to remember the guy who did the makeup effects for it. Who won, uh, won, I don't think he won an Oscar for this, but he won an Oscar for Amadeus. And, but his effects for to make a possessed Reagan. And I love, like, the scene that freaks me out the most is not any of the possession scenes. It's actually when they take Reagan to the hospital to get the arteriogram. And you see, like, they stick it, like, into his artery and it shoots blood out of her neck a little bit. And it's, like, I've seen people get chopped up into a million pieces. No problem. For some reason, that little blood spurt, I'm like, Ugh. And I become weak in the knees at that point. It's like, oh, I, I can't look at this. <laughs> and and when I when I, was, I saw this for the first time, like, because I, I saw it on TV, and it opened up with the Northern Iraq footage, and I'm like, why are we starting here? Like, why does this have to do with anything with the movie? But nowadays, I love the opening to The Exorcist. I love how it sets up. It almost opens up like how Lawrence of Arabia would open up, where we have, like, the big excav- ex- excavation. As I lose the ability to speak right there, I apologize. Um, and then how it, the movie opens so big and it gets more and more claustrophobic and it ends up in a tiny room at the end and then how it ends with the priest willing to sacrifice himself to save the, the little girl at the end along with the minimal score I mean I can go on and on I mean hell I did a two hour review with my buddy Larry back last October if you want to listen to my full thoughts on The Exorcist go listen to that but yeah number six The Exorcist Nice. Uh, yeah, I mean, this one is not in my top 15 because, as I mentioned, like, exorcism, just not really my thing. Uh, but I can't, you can't deny the impact that this film has and just the quality of the film itself. I think it's a great movie, even if it's not in my top 15. It's a great movie in and of itself. And uh, it's one of those movies that just had this mystique about it growing up where it's like, oh, it's the scariest movie ever made. And maybe that was why, maybe it was overhyped by the time I finally saw it. Uh, but it's still, it's a great movie. It's it's beautifully made. It's very scary and uh, great choice. Yeah, and it's funny, like, like what was it on, in amongst the real fans group Matthew Malecki like he asked me like because I was watching it to refresh myself on the movie before we did this uh, this podcast and he's like is it really that good I'm like I don't want to say it because I want to like build it up like how you felt like I feel like it's one of the greatest movies in American cinema or international cinema altogether it's just like one of those things that just becomes a touchstone of cinema especially for the new Hollywood system where studios were willing to take chances on these up-and-coming filmmakers and they're willing to push boundaries and i love spielberg and i love lucas but it almost feels i almost kind of feel i have to shake my finger at you because i love jaws and i love star wars and i love the things that came out afterwards but like it's because of stuff like that we don't get movie at least we didn't for a long time didn't get movies like the godfather or heaven's gate or well heaven's gate michael chimino kind of screwed up himself so i'm not going to really blame them for that but movies that students are willing to take chances like that. So yeah, I mean The Exorcist I absolutely love and can't recommend it enough. Nice. And what is your number five? All right, we're in the top five. Uh this will be my final mention of James Wan today. 
And that is Insidious. Ooh. I love this one. Uh, to me, this was James Wan's comeback because after Saw, he did Dead Silence, which we talked about, which I love but did not do well. Um, he did Death Sentence, but it wasn't a huge hit. And Insidious was another little horror movie like Saw that he made for next to nothing. I think it was $1.5 million that he made it. And it already started generating buzz because they were showing it at festivals. And I got excited because I'm like, oh my God, James Wan's back with another horror movie because of how much i like saw and i liked uh dead silence and it was his take on a haunted house and boy did he deliver much like we talked about with the conjuring i loved that he gave us a variety of scary ghosts to haunt us in insidious i love that it was essentially his version of poltergeist it was yeah. bringing poltergeist into to a new generation but doing a fresh spin on it the idea that the go the house is not haunted the people are haunted. And I loved that, uh, you know, because so many times you watch a haunted house movie, you go, why don't you just move? Move, people. And this is a haunted house movie where they move halfway through. They're like, we don't need this. They move. But it doesn't help. They are still uh, up Shit's Creek with these guys, uh, this, this demon following this family. And um, I think it... Uh, amazing cast um i love patrick wilson i think uh he's amazing i love rose byrne uh i love uh lynn shay who and this has become now a uh a steady paycheck for her uh playing uh, playing the um you know whatever you want to call it the the medium the psychic the who who battles these spirits um it's just a really really scary creepy unique take on the haunted house genre it works the scares still work i love how subtle some of the scares are and that's another thing james wan does so well is you think you see something and you're not sure but then you realize what you're seeing and you're like oh god oh god that's that is definitely a big scary ghost standing behind that baby's crib um and there's great moments like that throughout. I love how low tech it is. The fact that these ghosts are just actors, but it works. And then some people, it lost some people by them going into the further. For me, I thought it was extremely creative. And again, some giving us something new that we had never seen in this genre before. And it worked because it became a sleeper hit. And uh, now they're in the midst of making chapter four uh i love actually i i love all three of the first insidious movies but this one i think is the best uh and it uh came out of nowhere and became a, a wonderful surprise horror hit in april of uh oh god what year was it 2013 maybe uh or was it even older i think it's 2011 no maybe it's 2011 you Conjure might be was right 2013 Oh God, 2010. Oh geez, God, God, time flies. Um, <laughs> how silly! But yes, anyway, the spring of 2010, this came out, uh, knocked me on my butt, and I think it is just uh, for me, it is it moved up the ranks. It's now my number five favorite horror film. Nice. I mean, I, this almost made the list. It was so tough to keep this off, but I do have another James Wan movie in my top five. But like you. Patrick Wilson is like one of those actors like I, I've kind of like figured like there's like three like like male actors I'll watch and anything it's like it's Jake Gyllenhaal it's Joel Edgerton and Patrick Wilson if they're in it I'll end up watching it because I can watch them act at anything and it became like my love for Patrick Wilson started with this movie and I remember the first time I watched it when I was up at college my buddy Lee's like my my buddy Lee wanted to show it to my friend Tom and I 
And he's like, all right, you're going to really enjoy this. Like, okay. Turn up the lights. He puts it on. He gets a text like five minutes in from the movie from his girlfriend. And he's like, all right, I'll be right back. Leaves the room. And we're like, just sitting there like, all right, well, he'll be back eventually. And both of us get sucked into it. And he, doesn't, he shows up like Lee comes back and there's like five minutes left in the movie. And I'm like, like, where'd you go? You left us watching a movie with this Darth Maul looking guy chasing people around and scaring the crap out of us. And now I have, I'm never going to be able to listen to Tiny Tim the same again because of this movie. I blame <laughs> you for that. And I loved every moment of that. And I like you, like you said, like it's one of those things with like how James Wan says scares, where you don't, not sure if you see exactly the same thing, or you're not, not sure if you just saw something. I love when they move to the second house and they're unpacking, and you follow Rose Byrne through like throughout the house. Yeah, you see the kid in the corner. And you and the first time you don't notice him, but right? Like second, and you're and you're not sure, and because they don't do the. They don't do like the the music that goes, you know, they because they just let it play and you either notice it or you don't. But he's there. And then uh, and like like you were saying with the the further like going to astral projection that you could lose people. But they didn't. They added a new spoke to the wheel when it came to haunted house movies with that. And I applaud them for that. Um, what do you think of Insidious 2 when they actually involve time travel at that point? I love Insidious 2. I love how they Back to the Future Part 2 did. I thought that was so cool. Like, what a great idea, because there is that moment in the first Insidious where there's the banging on the door that's never explained. And I love that they went back and revisited it in the sequel. I thought that was such a clever use of it, because they do say that, you know, time doesn't work in the further the way it does in our world. That's set up from the very beginning. So to use that to play with it. Oh, I thought that was so clever. And I think Chapter 2 is much like Conjuring 1 and 2. I think Chapter 2 of Insidious is just as good. You could argue better. I wouldn't really necessarily argue on it because I do think it's just as strong. I think it's even more intense. So I 1 and 2 are just a terrific uh, double feature. Yeah, and I love how like Patrick Wilson is pretty much channeling Jack Nicholson from The Shining throughout Insidious 2. Mm-hmm. And I love the moment where, like, what's behind your back? Well... Ask your dice. What do you think is behind my back? And like, that's a, you have a knife behind your back, and he's got the big giant grin on his face, and then he identifies him at the as a spirit that's possessing possessing uh, uh, Patrick Wilson's body. And you're like, and how intense that gets. Like, oh yeah, Insidious Two, I really enjoy. Insidious Three, I really dig as well. And I mean, like I like I said, I watched it last night. It's like one of the few horror movies that make me jump. And for some reason, the ending and the resolution between the main the main character and her mother at the end, like, for some reason, I get choked up at. I'm like, what's the whole, like? This is the only horror movie that can make me do both feel both polar opposite emotions in there. So that's why I enjoyed the third one. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, so good choice right there. Thanks. Mm-hmm. All right, and now into my top five, and I have to go 180 degrees away from supernatural horror to go for almost documentary like because. Before Michael Worker was known as Merle on The Walking Dead and Yondu in Gar- Guardians of the Galaxy, he was known, to me at least, as Henry from Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. And this is just one of those grungy, unnerving movies that we follow this character who is a killer, and you, but he's so soft-spoken, and he's so polite, you don't know what he's going to do. And then he teams up with Tom Tolles, who becomes his buddy, and they go out killing people with each other and you just go along with the ride with them and the scariest moment is with them is when they kill a department store guy 
steal a video camera and then we watch back a home invasion that they, that they uh, perpetrated and they killed his family. And then you just you cut to them watching their own crime back and they're like, it's so unnerving. And it's be, there's like as much as I love Michael Worker and everything he does, and even in Slither or Tombstone where he has like a bit part or Mississippi Burning, I always think of Henry Porter's serial killer portrait of the serial killer when it comes to Michael Rooker and how grave an actor he is. He is certainly a great actor. Um, I've never seen this one, though. Oh, it was... it. It's funny because it was made at the height of, like, the slasher boom, and, like, the independent producers wanted to, like, cash in on that. So, like, we'll give you $100,000 to make a scary movie based on this serial killer called Henry Lee Lucas, and they wanted to make it a kind of, like, a schlocky horror movie, but what they got was a very realistic like almost documentary feel and you're like we can't get a secure rating and it was put on the shelf for four years because they couldn't get distribution out of that and so like it became like almost one of those movies where it was talked about like yeah they're gonna eventually release it so in 1990 they eventually did and it became a cult hit and it's one of those things where my buddy renee like his older brother chris told us about it and like wow i really i gotta i gotta see this and Another thing I showed my friends while up at school, and now amongst my friends, we're big sport, sports fans, especially football. Most of us are like Jets or Giants fans. We have one, we have a few Green Bay Packers fans, and our buddy uh, Eric, who we call Pup because he follows around like a puppy dog. He's the Chicago Bears fan, and we always beat on him because he's a Bears fan. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Andy. I don't know if you're a Bears fan or not. I'm from Chicago, so I am by default, but I'm I don't feel that strongly about it. Okay, and because there's a joke in this movie where, like, Michael Rooker goes to buy cigarettes from him, uh, a bodega, and the the cashier tries to make conversation with him. He's like, so, how about them bears? And, like, Michael Rooker's like, just says, F the bears, and he walks out. And he says it was just a stern way, and we always say we always say that to our buddy Pop. He's like, yo, Pop, F the bears. He's like, you know what, man? It's not cool, man, just being beaten down like that. Like, I'm sorry, man. Like, your team is not that good, so... Yeah, Henry Portrait Serial Killer. If you haven't checked it out, I highly recommend it. All right, nice. All right, and what is your number four? Number four, it's my turn to talk about Scream, the original. Ah. So when I chose Scream 2, that was not in lieu of Scream because I do love Scream a heck of a lot. Uh, The original Wes Craven Scream came at just the right time. What I loved about this movie is when I went and saw it, I knew almost nothing about it. I went to see it out of boredom and because I'm like, well, I got to go see something. I like, you know, I like Wes Craven. So I'll check this out. And man, was I blown away. I think that happened to most of us in 1996 when we saw this movie is none of us knew what we were in store for. And my God, is it good? Um, the way it plays with genre conventions and yet still works as a horror movie in its own right. It is brilliant. I think it's what Wes Craven was trying to pull off with new nightmare, but couldn't quite get there. He finally nailed with scream with amazing script by Kevin Williamson, an amazing cast of young actors. And like you said, I thought drew Barrymore was the star. I was tricked. And so we sat there and that opening sequence is just, one of the most masterfully directed sequences in film history, if you ask me, uh, just immediately sucked me in, put me on the edge of my seat, and uh, I couldn't believe where it went. And 
I didn't see it coming that they they psychoed Drew Barrymore. Uh, the movie is great. A movie that speaks movies to movie geeks like me. It's as good as it gets. And the fact, as you mentioned, it pays so much homage to Halloween is only a bonus, but it pays homage to a bunch of different horror films. So, uh, yeah, Scream uh, was a movie. I it wasn't even in my on my radar until I went to see it. And man, I fell in love with it. And uh, now it is it's just one of my favorite horror films of all time. And I can still watch it and just love the hell out of it. So uh, that's why it's my number four. High praise right there, and it's deserving of all the praise it gets. It is a beautifully made movie, and I love even the one moment where you think of like later, like half, I guess, well, I guess where Act One would end, where Sydney's going through her house and she opens the closet, and you think somebody's gonna pop out of there, and you even got like almost a music cue for that, and you're like, oh nope, just a just no, nope, nothing in the closet, but eventually that's where Ghostface eventually pops out at one point. And a, a moment where it's like horror movies are all the same. It's all about big-breasted girls who can't act. Or should going up the stairs and they should be going at the front door. It's insulting. And of course, she Sydney ends up running up the front upstairs because that's the only way she can get out. Yeah, and it just mm. so many tropes were introduced to me because of Scream. And like, I love it. For, and like, I do agree. Like you're saying, Wes Craven had ideas of like kind of like a meta feeling on horror movies in general. And I think with Kevin Williams' script here. He does nail it a little bit better than how he does in Wes Craven's new nightmare. Yeah, exactly. I think that the uh, the secret ingredient was Kevin Williamson. And I think that's why Scream 2 works so well. Um, and it's a shame they never made a third movie. So, <laughs> uh, Then what do you think of Scream 4? I love it. I, I think... Uh, it's it's weird that a, a franchise would make a one and a two and then jump to four without making a three, but Scream did it and it works. Yeah, so it, it, it's it's baffling, but you know what? You just go with it. I I love the Scream trilogy of one, two, and four. <laughs> oh God, Scream three. Oh, but this. Oh no, I'm gonna start sprouting white hair. Some stress thinking about that movie. But uh, any last thoughts on Scream? uh no it's 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 amazing and it it brought a dead genre back to life it was so good you know at that point there hadn't been a horror hit in a long time and scream came out and changed the game just like just like saw did just like uh the exorcist did just like night of the living dead did you know we've seen a lot of these on our lists of movies that changed the genre and uh reinvigorated the genre when when people had thought it was dead but we learned that horror movies they don't die they just become undead oh i'm gonna have to remember that that that's that is really clever there sir yeah so scream <laughs> all right all right moving on to my number four a horror movie list would not be complete unless we have one stephen king on the list and it was kind of tough of which stephen king movie to go with but really thinking about it, the one Stephen King movie that's always stuck with me, it has to be The Mist. Mmm, nice. I know people thought I would have gone with The Shining, but I've I like The Shining. I don't think it's the best adaptation, nor do I think it's Stanley Kubrick's the best. I know somebody's gonna shank me one day for that. Like, what? That's that's Stephen that's Kubrick's best movie. I'm like, no, no, no. Go to earlier Kubrick, he's a lot better. I'm sorry. Like Shining, I think, is kind of overrated in my opinion. I like 
I like Christine. Carrie was almost on the list because I'm a huge Brian De Palma fan, and I love Sissy Spacek. But The Mist stays with me because I'm a big fan of H.P. Lovecraft, and The Mist is Stephen King's love letter to Lovecraft, and Frank Darabont totally succeeds in that. And one of the biggest things about Lovecraftian literature is that the universe does not care about you. It is indifferent. You 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 exist in a space and time, and one day you will not exist in that space and time, and you the universe will go on without you. And that's what this movie is: that we have these weird monsters that Thomas Jane and everybody's trapped in a in a tight space of how how people will eventually will start organized and start being commutative, but you take away water, you take away food, and you put a great amount of stress on people, and maybe it's just like how I kind of view. I would love. I don't. Like, I'm a pretty big optimist when it comes to humanity, but there is a part of me like there are there are times where push comes to shove, people will turn on each other. History has shown that, and it's perfectly exemplified in this movie, and especially the. And then he comes to the ending, which I don't know if you have you seen the mist. I have, and it's great. Okay, and like I don't know. I, I will not spoil the ending here, but that ending, whew, I, I just, the first time I saw that, like, like hands on my cheek, like, screaming, like, like Macaulay Culkin on the Home Alone cover, like, that's how I reacted to that, I'm like, wow, I will not spoil it here, but everything building to that ending, and then one of the moments in the movie where one of the characters has spiders burst out of him and crawl around and are killing people like I have no like bugs like like a swarms of bugs freak me out and so that's why like Temple of Doom like that's what like that's like the biggest thing that kind of irks like makes me feel uncomfortable it's not not the snakes or the rats but it's really dealing with all the bugs trying to save Indy and Short Round makes me feel very uncomfortable and the same thing happens in the mist with all the spiders coming out as they're trying to escape the pharmacy Thomas Jane crushes it in this movie Frank Darabont's direction. I mean, and then you have like a who's who of people who show up in all Frank Darabont's projects, including The Walking Dead. So yeah, The Mist, absolutely love. And if you get a chance, watch the black and white version because he kind of imagined to be like a universal horror movie, and it's interesting to watch it in that in that regard. Excellent. Yeah, I, I love this one. It's a, a great movie, and I uh, I agree with everything you said. Great cast, great direction, uh, some really unexpected twists and turns, and uh, yeah, uh, the monsters in the movie are not the monsters you thought they were. No. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's great. And just how hypocrisy and how societal norms can really turn people jaded against each other and such, and it's magnificent. Missed. I can't hire. I can't recommend it enough. Okay. So, what is your number three? All right. Number three, uh, another Wes Craven movie, right next to Scream. So, number three is Wes Craven's A Nightmare on Elm Street. Ah, uh, yes. Um, I don't know if this was my first horror movie, but it had to have come close. This this was a movie I had heard about. Um. And I was still a little kid, but a buddy of mine had it on videotape. I think he taped it off HBO. And I went over to his place to spend the night on a Friday night, and we watched A Nightmare on Elm Street. And it's so scary, but it is so good. And it started my love affair with Freddy Krueger. So 
uh, that first movie I still think is a horror masterpiece. I think it still works, uh, low budget or not. I mean, a lot of these movies, uh, low budget, but they still work amazingly well. Um, a really interesting premise for a horror movie, uh, something that you hadn't really seen before, an iconic killer perfectly personified by Robert England. Uh, it also pulls a little bit of a psycho switcheroo because when the movie starts, you get to know Tina, you think she's going to be your main character. But Tina doesn't last, and then the shift focuses to Nancy. So something that we learned from Hitchcock, but something that Wes Craven has employed himself more than once. Um, and just an incredibly creative, incredibly scary, and incredibly entertaining horror movie and it's a movie that i think that as a kid i watched it and i thought it was scary but i mostly thought it was fun but then i watched it again as an adult when it was finally released on dvd and i was like man this is so much scarier than i remember it actually got scarier with age and i guess just because i was older like some of the stuff when you're a kid you're like oh it's you know like you don't attach as much weight to certain things happening when you're a kid because they mean less. But as an adult, when you're watching poor Tina get thrown around that room while her boyfriend just watches helplessly and how terrifying that is, it just it just packed more of a punch to me as an adult than it ever did when I was a kid. So I think that, you know, it's Wes Craven again doing what he does best. And I I mean delivering a, a horror classic and one of the best movies in the genre that again, unfortunately maybe sometimes gets forgotten because of the countless sequels that came after. But if you go back and watch that first movie and try to forget what came after, it's just an amazingly effective and terrifying horror movie. Definitely. And I, I still wonder to this day what the deal was with the sheep at the very beginning. I don't know what it means, but it's dream it's dream logic, so I guess it doesn't really matter. And yeah, and coming to thinking about it, Wes Craven pulled that technique, like the Hitchcock like psycho switch, early in his career. Last house to the left, main characters are killed, like the end of the second act, and it's, you're with the parents for the rest of the movie to get revenge on the killers. So this is something that that, that Wes Craven would utilize often, if like. Set up like, oh, you think this person's going to be with you? Nope, we're going to kill him off, and you're going to have to be stuck with somebody else. But yeah, uh, Nightmare on Street, the original is is perfect. Like you said, low budget, but like we've 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 iterated several times. Like limitations do make you more creative, and and I love like if you had like I assume you've seen the Never Sleep Again documentary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's been a while, but yeah, I have. I mean, like, for horror fans in general, especially if you're a Nightmare on Elm Street fan, I can't recommend that enough because it's one of the, one of the most comprehensive documentaries ever made about a horror franchise, only possibly surpassed by Crystal Lake Memories because it's, it's even longer. It's like, it's like seven hours in length because it covers all the Friday the 13th movies. I just wish Halloween would ever get that, t- that uh, treatment, but I'm, I'm not going to hold my breath for that. Um, there is one. There is one for it. There, there's like there's like a ninety minute like um for for the original or for the entire series. I feel like there's one for the series. I'd have to oh I'd have to go look. But maybe it's just maybe it was just a documentary about the original. But I swear there was one. Um, I'm not in my living room. Otherwise, I would go check my shelf because I have it. Whatever it is. Uh, right. But yeah. 
you feel like something like that would would have been included in the Shout Factory release when they had all the Halloweens in one collection. But anyway, back to Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah, it is perfect. It is Wes Craven like being one of the most putting out one of the most creative uh, movies up on the screen. Robert England is tremendous as Freddy Krueger. What do you think of Jackie Earl Haley's performance as Freddy Krueger in the remake? I I really did not like the remake, but I think Jackie Earl Haley did the best he could with what he had. So I, right. I, I, I think he really tried. I think the movie itself is pretty bad. I, I don't think he's helped with the makeup that he was given. No, I didn't like the redesign either. I think they tried too hard to make it different, which... I get wanting to do that with a remake of like, oh, we want to, you know, we don't want to just be copying everything, but the rest of the movie copied everything. So what difference does it make at that point? Yeah. I mean, hell, even Platinum Dunes had the exact same Jason mask for, for Derek Myers for the Friday 13th remake. So like why split hairs with the design for Freddy Krueger? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, Jackie Earl Haley tried his best to uh, to make lemonade out of lemons, but I just think it's a, a pretty lame and uninspired remake. Yeah. Maybe it'll be a topic for another day, horror movie remakes. But anyway, any more thoughts on Nightmare on Elm Street? Uh, nope. Terrific movie. Classic for a reason. All right, then. So moving on to my number three. So I finally get to have James Wan on my list, and it has to be The First Conjuring. Ah, Nice. And the reason being is because one of the best things about seeing horror movies in the theater is the group mentality that everybody is, if the movie's good and everybody's in there to see that movie, especially for like it's opening night where everybody's like, all right, I've gone out of my way to make sure to see this as early as possible. And everybody's um, clicked at the same point. Like everybody's on the same playing field. Like, all right, we're all here to be scared and we are all we are all terrified and ha- feel the emotion waves go through every person in the theater. That was the first time I really experienced that was with The Conjuring. And opening up with the Annabelle doll and the prologue with that and then moving on to with the with the the family moving into the house and the clap game and you set that up like, oh, you know that's gonna come back and bite them in, in the butt. And I remember when I got the Blu ray of it of the conjuring where it's just the mother on the cover holding up the match with the hands clapping in the background. And like, I always thought like, that's kind of a lame cover. I kind of like the original poster art where you see like the silhouette of the witch hanging like this, her shadow on the ground, like being hanged from the tree. I wish that was on the Blu-ray, but rewatching the conjuring for this, this podcast specifically realize how awesome that scene is. of like the mother, being trapped into the basement and then all of a sudden a ghost pop up to clap behind her ears and it makes you jump. And I know like we like I said before, like how the Exorcist launched a thousand ships and this movie has an exorcism scene in it. Like I guess like kinda of like the one of the bad things about seeing the Exorcist later on is like, oh I've seen exorcisms in other movies before. And I kinda of like how they did in this movie where there's a lull in the exorcism and where Patrick Wilson and Vera Miles are trying to perform this exorcism. They had the burlap sack over the mother trying to get the witch out of her. And it goes quiet. And you can hear a pin drop. Like, I'm watching in the movie theater and I can hear people crunching on candy from the other side of the theater. Like, that's <laughs> how quiet it got. And then you see the chair just lift into the air and everybody just like, 
everybody gasps at that same point, and then the, the burlap sack rips, and you see the witch's face. I, I was watch, I watched it again last week, and I'm watching it by myself, and I'm like, I had to pause the movie because I had the lights off. And I'm like, I have to turn the lights on because I am freaking myself out here right now. I, it's something that I, I absolutely love. I mean, Conjuring 2 is fantastic, and he expands upon it even more. But for some reason, the first Conjuring has always stuck with me. And like I mentioned before, they mentioned the annual horror at the end. The whole theater popped for that because we're like, hey, they're talking about us. Because Long Island Pride and everything like that. So yeah, <laughs> Conjuring, I absolutely love. Awesome. Yeah, I can't argue with you at all. I think it's a great movie. Uh, like I said when I talked about Conjuring 2, I think they're both terrific. Um, I've certainly made my love of James Wan very clear. But yeah, The Conjuring <laughs> was just a, a huge hit for him and well-deserved. It's a it's a great movie. And again, I think that the, the secret to it is the same as The Conjuring 2 in that he makes you care about the people. So it's not just cheap scares. It is uh, a really terrifying situation around people that you now care about about and that makes a huge difference yeah and i love the music for it uh, the cinematography is gorgeous and uh, hell like even like that well, on facebook i posted the gif of like of like the prelude like up to this podcast where uh, lorraine and ed warren are down by the dock and she's like there's something really bad happened here and it, you hear like a rope tighten and we see the reaction on her face, and then we cut to what her point of view is, and you see the the, the witch's ghost hanging behind uh, Patrick Wilson. And you're like, oh, that's creepy. Or when Vera Miles is taking the laundry off the um, laundry line, and it's so windy, like she loses it, and the laundry wraps around a figure of somebody who's standing right next to her, and then it blows away up into the window, and you see the figure yeah. in the window. Or like, mm-hmm chills like i'm just talking about it and I, my the hair on my arms just started to stand up just talking about it but yeah so conjuring absolutely love and what is your number two all right number two one that you've already mentioned and that is uh the granddaddy or i'm going to say the mother of most horror movies alfred hitchcock's psycho Ooh. Uh, one of my favorite films of all time and one of my favorite horror films of all time because you could say it invented the slasher subgenre of horror. Uh, that's why I call it the mother of them all. Uh, oh. It's an amazing movie. Uh, again, uh, one of the best twists in film history with uh, getting you really invested in what's going on with Marion Crane and her drama, and you think you're watching a thriller, and then halfway through, the whole thing takes an amazing turn, and now it's a horror movie. Uh, and all of that stuff about stolen money doesn't matter. Uh, I love it. I love it. Uh, of course, you know, the the shower scene, one of the most iconic sequences ever put to film that is still studied, I think, in every film class in the world to this day, and rightfully so. Uh, and an amazing, timeless performance by Anthony Perkins as Norman Bates. And I think that's the secret weapon of this movie. Aside from even, I fell in love with this movie after I already knew the twists and turns. I wish I could go back in time and see this in 1960, not knowing what was going to happen. I could only imagine how my mind would have been blown. But I wasn't born back then. So when I saw it, I think the first time I actually watched it from beginning to end, I was probably a teenager. I really, really liked it, but I knew 
that Norman was mother. You know, like I, I knew that. I knew that Marion Crane wasn't going to survive that shower. These are just things you know, being a movie nerd. Right. Um, however, I still loved and fell in love with the movie, even though I knew those things because of how well it's directed and how well it's acted. And I think that Anthony Perkins is a big reason for that. He is so good as Norman. And to this day, when I watch the movie, I can't help but love Norman. He's so good in it. Um, He's so charming. He's so unassuming. He is so likable, which I can only imagine in 1960, if you had never seen this movie, you would never suspect this sweet man. Um, And then even now, like when he's, when he's cleaning up this murder and he is putting that car in the swamp, I'm hoping it sinks because even though I'm not happy that Marion is dead, I still am somehow rooting for Norman because of how likable Anthony Perkins is. Um, it's a great mystery, but it's a great horror movie. Those scares still work. They're just a little more spread out um, because it was a different time, and that's okay. But, uh, yeah, I think without Psycho, you don't get uh, some of the other great horror films in the genre. And it started as it should with the master, Hitch himself, and uh, – it's a movie that I re- revisit often because uh, it's it's just as good as it gets. So Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho, number two, uh, amazing classic film. I I can't agree more. I mean, I love the moment where like Janet Lee and Anthony Perkins are back in the parlor having dinner, and Marion makes a reference to something, and Norman just leans in really close, and his demeanor completely changes. And how that that conversation becomes very intense very quickly, and he becomes super defensive of his mother, and how like they always say someplace or put her someplace, and how you along you along with Marion are just like this is very uncomfortable. I need to get out of here as quickly as possible. And as soon as that happens, then that's when Norman kind of sits back, like, huh, ooh, sorry there. And I always wonder who's really speaking there. I wonder, is that mother just speaking for him at that point? Or is that really mm-hmm. Norman's true feelings? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I, I think it is Norman because because at the end of the day, he is in love with his mother. And right. so and so although she drives him crazy, uh, he can't imagine like, he's very protective of her. It's one of those things where it's like, um, you know, nobody beats up my little brother but me. Yeah. Like, whereas, like, he's a, he's allowed to vent about his mother, but as soon as someone else says something negative about her, he won't stand for it. Right. Gotcha. But, yeah, Psycho I, is perfect. I mean, hell, I have a free night tomorrow night. I may end up putting on Psycho because we're just gushing over right now. So, um, so And the yeah, score. Oh, my God, how good is the score and the opening titles and just the iconography of the, the Bates Motel and the Bates House, the Psycho House. Like, I mean, everything about this movie is, is iconic. Is the house still there or did they tear that down recently? It's still out here on the Universal Backlot. Um, it's been moved, and I don't know how much of the original house, like, it is and how much it's kind of been rebuilt and over the years. But yes, the psycho house is still on the universal back lot. I know okay. they've moved it. I just don't know how much they've, they've renovated it and how much of it's truly original anymore, but it's there along with the Bates motel. Okay. Cause like, that's one of the things I want to visit whenever I get out to California. It's kind of like 
whenever I heard like when the Universal like kind of lot caught fire years ago and like the Back to the Future set was heavily damaged, and I always wondered like, all right, how much is still there? Like how much is like the Psycho still Psycho set still with the house and Bates Motel, as well as like the Phantom of the Opera set? I'm like, I wonder how often does that get updated? Like what still exists and what doesn't? So and I remember the Bates Hotel being moved or the the mother's house being moved. I wasn't sure if it was actually torn down altogether, but thank you for clarifying that for me. Yep. It, it's still there and they still call it the psycho house and it looks great. Uh, so, you know, all right, you can, you can come visit it. Awesome. And since we're speaking about universal, we'll move on to my number two and has to be bride of Frankenstein. Oh, I, excellent. I had to get one classic universal horror movie on the list and as much as I love the original Frankenstein, I think Brian Frankenstein surpasses it in almost every way. Much like some people say the Dark Knight's better than Batman Begins or Empire Strikes Back is better than Star Wars, I think Brian Frankenstein is much better than Frankenstein. I think it's James Whale firing on all cylinders, Universal giving him carte blanche to do exactly what he wants. And, and I love how it opens up with Mary Shelley and Lord Byron and um, uh, her... Uh, I forgot the her husband's first name. I can't remember the poet uh, Shelley that they're talking about this kind of fictitious conversation. What would have happened with the monster afterwards? Karloff's performance, um, Doctor Pretorius. I mean, so much like iconography has been set up because of Universal monster movies, specifically the first two Frankenstein movies that would become cliches afterwards. But my favorite part of this movie is when the monster meets the blind hermit for like five minutes of the movie and how he has a a chance to show that humanity is not completely screwed up and everything. It takes a blind person to realize that the monster is not actually a monster. He's just a person who's been reanimated. And then the hermit's place burns down and you're just like, and he goes out screaming, friend, friend, and how he becomes monstrous after that and how Pretorius uses him as a, pawn his own game to get back to that Dr. Frankenstein and the bride's in it for like 30 seconds of the movie but she becomes an icon because of her look and mm-hmm. how uh, Jack Pierce's makeup is just perfect the music is tremendous I can gush on about this it's like this is in my top 10 favorite movies love Bride of Frankenstein Hmm. Awesome. Yeah, I, I love that you've got this here. Uh, I love that you you saved a spot for a classic Universal monster movie. I I wanted to, and then I didn't. Um, they were, you know, they they were all there, and they all just fell out of the top fifteen. But I love them. I love those classic ones. I love Dracula. I love Frankenstein. I love Bride. I love the Wolfman. I love Creature from the Black Lagoon. Like I love those movies so much. Um, I think they didn't make the cut for me just because they don't scare me. Yeah, <laughs> and, it's fair. Yeah, you're, they're beautiful, and they're so great, and I love them, and they're moody, but I don't find them scary, so I think that's why they they didn't make it. But um, I'm so glad you did, because it's a, a great choice. I mean, if you put it within the context of when they were released, I mean, audiences must have been petrified of seeing these movies for the first time. Mm-hmm. And like, I know like maybe like even when I was a kid, I was not scared of them, because I'd seen scooby-doo deal with like the frankenstein monster and whatnot so i was not scared of it but i feel like i feel like i'd be doing a disservice not having this there i mean brian frankenstein i love uh, you mentioned before creature from the black lagoon which i think is kind of underrated when it comes to the universal monster movies i don't think he gets enough love 
as compared mm-hmm. to Dracula. Um, but yeah, so Bride of Frankenstein, I cannot give more love to that movie. I mean, it's tremendous. And I almost like the Universal Monster movies, they, they were so short, like they were like 60 minutes a piece. Like you could watch Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, and Son of Frankenstein in like a little over three hours right there. Like if you want to have like a mini marathon. Mm-hmm. I, I say go for it, and then watch Young Frankenstein and laugh and laugh your your butts off with that. Excellent. All right, I have a feeling we have the same number one movie. That's that's my hunch too. Yeah. So, what is your number one? My number one is uh, Freddy's Dead: The Final Nightmare. I knew it. It just had to be. I because 3D. I'm just a sucker for 3D. Of course. Uh, <laughs> um it is of course john carpenter's halloween yes. uh anybody who knows me this is not a shock in the least it is uh it's my favorite horror film of all time it is one of my favorite films of all time it is uh it is a masterpiece in every sense of the word uh another low budget horror film that in the hands of a master director became something so much more uh also redefined the genre and uh, became a massive cultural milestone. I think that the brilliance of the direction makes this movie. And uh, again, uh, like like a lot of these, maybe some of the, the lesser sequels might have tarnished its reputation, but that first movie still stands head and shoulders among uh, the best of the genre to become uh, just a masterpiece in its own right. Uh, Jamie Lee Curtis is wonderful as Laurie Strode, but uh, the true star of the film is John Carpenter as the director and as the composer. The music doesn't get more iconic than the Halloween theme. Uh, The way that Carpenter directs this film is with uh, the suspense and the slow building of dread and the red herrings and always keeping Michael Myers, always keeping the shape around. I I think that's the most brilliant thing that he does is that even in the most uh, banal conversations between a a couple of high school gals uh, on, on just a normal day, there is always danger lurking around the corner and we as the audience know it and we as the audience see it and they are blissfully unaware. And that is what I think builds the tension so beautifully in this movie is they think it's just a normal Halloween night, but we see the shape just lurking in the distance. We see the shape hanging out in the background. We see the shape. We know he's out in the shadows just waiting for the time to be right. And it's that, beautiful building of suspense that makes this movie work and then when it finally hits into overdrive it is just one of the scariest most intense uh you know finales of of any horror film and then uh john carpenter leaving us in a lurch as he likes to do uh with another cliffhanger um the cliffhanger was not there to set up a a sequel although it it did uh it was it was there merely as a uh, as as a statement on how evil never truly dies, and then I've got, of course got to mention uh, Donald Pleasance as Doctor Sam Loomis, paying homage to Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. I love that Psycho, the first real slasher film and a masterpiece in its own right, was then. Uh, 
given this homage in John Carpenter's Halloween, which redefined horror and became a masterpiece in its own right, which then was paid homage again in Scream, which redefined horror and became a masterpiece in its own right. So I love how the Loomis homage carries to three of my favorite horror movies of all time. I think that's amazing. It's as it should be. Um, but Donald Pleasance, who showed up for two weeks of work, but just owned the role of Sam Loomis. And for him, that was a role that was the gift that just kept on giving. And uh, he, he played the part until his till the day he died. And it, you know, kept him gainfully employed. But he's he's so cool, he's so intense, and uh, oftentimes you don't know who's who's creepier, the the doctor or the the killer. Um you know, it was before they had to explain everything. There was there was no logic because there's no true logic behind pure evil. It just is. And I love that aspect of this movie, too. Um, so for me, everything about it works. I watch it every Halloween. Uh, it is a movie I got obsessed with in my childhood. The first time I truly ever saw it, I was a teenager. And it so freaked me out because of the way Michael Myers was just always there. And so much like American Werewolf in London, if there was a dark shadow, it it didn't take much imagination for me to imagine that it's the shape. And it freaked me the F out. And it And it just completely scared me for days after i watched it and instead of it turning me off of it it made me love this movie so much so i became obsessed with it and so it's my favorite horror movie of all time again one of my favorite films of all time i think it's a master class in uh, suspense and horror direction that implies more than it shows sometimes people remember more than is actually shown in the film which is again a testament to carpenter's talent um and then spawned a franchise a franchise that i have a lot of love for even if some of the movies aren't great just because of how much i love the original so one of the best horror soundtracks of all time to go with one of the best films of all time as well so john carpenter's halloween number one with a bullet well, we all know that the the essence of pure evil is a dysfunctional family of rednecks that curse at each other. We Stop all know it. this. Stop <laughs> it! Don't, don't. Oh, I'm sorry. I had to. Uh, <laughs> uh, sorry. It's so bad. It's so bad. <laughs> it, I, like, uh, for last Halloween, my my buddy Mike and I we watched two versions of that movie. Actually, three versions of that movie. We we read two versions of the script of that. Like we had five iterations of the the remake, and it got to the point where, like this video of me just like screaming into a pillow because I've lost it because I've had up to here where this nonsense. Like there's some like, good ideas, but there's it's buried under a pile of crap that I just can't stand anymore. Anyway, back to John Carpenter's Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> it is like you said. It is a masterclass. This is a movie that I've sat with a notepad and pen in hand. And wrote down, why does this scene work? Why is this scary? Why is this coverage of how he shoots a scene work? Why does the music cue here work? And like you are saying before, with Michael being, could theoretically be anywhere. A scene between the uh, Loomis and Lee Brackett, the sheriff, outside the hardware store and have Michael drive in the background. And Loomis is oblivious of to that Michael's there. Or a moment where, like you said, with the girls walking down the street just gossiping about their normal day, decide to yell something at a passing car, and this could happen. Like, like if you if you mess with the wrong person, 
just seeing somebody stop a car in the middle of the street and sit and sit there is unnerving. There is no blood, there's no gore like that, but just seeing a parked car and you don't know because the audience knows that there's a killer in there, it's unnerving. And or like even when little Tommy Doyle gets picked on by the bullies and the bully gets to kind of probably crap his pants because Michael scared him outside the school and then have him then have Michael drive pat next to Tommy as he's walking home is unnerving or like even when there's a moment in Halloween, which is a direct homage to psycho where in psycho Marion's sister walks up to Norman's uh, house and you cut from you cut from a close up for her backing up as the camera backs up with her as she walks forward and you cut to her point of view as it gets closer to the house. They do the exact same kind of editing technique in Halloween when Jamie Lee Curtis walks from across the street to her friend's uh, house to see what's going on because they think her friends are pulling a prank on her and the audience knows, like, do not go into that house. You're not going to like it. And, like, mention this aspect, you're going to have a bad time. And the music is tremendous. Dean Cundy's cinematography is gorgeous. And especially, like, most of the, the budget went to shooting this in p- p- actual widescreen. They shot in Panavision. And mm-hmm. it shows. It, like, it like we've mentioned before, like, how low-budget movies, like, they've embraced their limitations. But, like... I think going for that tech, going for that equipment, and having the prints being done by Metro, the the movie looks stupendous. I mean, especially if you watch on Blu-ray, it's gorgeous. Yeah, I'm running, I'm running out of adjectives to describe how how well it looks. Um, it is just wonderful. The score, I, I listen to it all the time. Hell, I'm in high school at one point. I'm walking down to the main offices, and like in the opening shot where it's it's Michael's young Michael's point of view is he's going around the house. And he watches his his sister make out with her boyfriend until they both go upstairs and we prove that he is the qu- the quickest man alive. It's not Barry Allen. It is that it is her yeah. <laughs> boyfriend. And there's a moment where the point of view goes back to the front of the house and looks upstairs and you see the light go off and there's a sting for it's like, and then the POV goes to the back of the house and through the back door. I'm walking to the front office and I hear that music behind me for some reason. It just subconsciously it happened. I had to, to stop and turn around thought like Michael was going to be behind me like you every time I see this it's going to be a dark shadow for the longest time I would just imagine Michael Myers could be standing there I went as Michael Myers for Halloween at one point and just stood on my corner and just watched people cross the street and like how many people just had to walk on the other side of the street because they didn't want to walk near me because I would just be standing there freaking people out hell I even made a fan film about Halloween because I love it so much like how I was going to continue the storyline of it I mean I this is like a, the movie that gets in heavy rotation I mean every Halloween I must watch this I mean I've shown it to people who do not like horror movies I'm like it is something what could be the best horror movie theoretically could be one of the best horror movies ever made I could go on for another 10 hours about this, but I'm not going to because we've gone here long enough. So any last words on Halloween? Um, I mean, I, I agree with all of that. I will also say it is easily the movie that I have bought the most because 
they just, I mean, ever since I fell in love with this movie, they released a new edition every year or two, and I just buy every single one. I bought it on VHS over and over and over again because Anchor Bay, who had the rights, they know that there are people like me who will buy it every time. (laughs) And so they just keep coming out with new editions with slightly different extras or whatever that I'm like, well, I really want that new documentary. Oh, I really want that conversation with uh, Jamie Lee Curtis. Oh, this one's been uh, color corrected by Dean Cundy, the director of photography. Well, I've got to buy that one. Oh, this one comes with a booklet. Well, I should buy that. So, Or the TV cut of the movie. Exactly. The TV cut, which is pointless, by the way. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, they know I'll keep buying it and I keep buying it, but uh, it is easily the movie that I have purchased more than any other movie in history. But you know what? It's Halloween. I don't feel too bad about it. And uh, it's funny. I, I went to film school as well. I made a, uh, a Halloween movie, but what it was is it was essentially Halloween versus Scream. So it was Michael Myers taking on Ghostface. Nice. So, yeah, that was what I did in college. Uh, <laughs> it would have been 1998, I think, probably. Gotcha. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, two years after Scream and Scream 2, yeah, I, uh, that was, that was, that's how much I, I love Halloween. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's as good as they get. Yeah, I mean, it's, I would have thought Batman would be the movie you would have bought the most on home, home media. Well, no, because there weren't many extra editions. Right. So, when I had Batman on VHS, they never released another one. It was just that one, so I only needed it. And then when it was released on DVD, I bought it. And then it was that same DVD until they finally came out with the anthology set. So, um, you know, Warner Brothers is not Anchor Bay, where Anchor Bay is just like, hey, we get a steady stream of money every time we re-release Halloween. So uh, just, you know, I think if, if WB did do what Anchor Bay did with Halloween, you might be right. But because they didn't... I only had to buy Batman a couple of times. Right. Although ba- it was my Batman was my very first DVD because I finally got to see it in widescreen because the VHS was not in widescreen. Yeah. And it's it's funny like I think Justin Lee actually posted this on the Real Fans group not too long ago but like which movie have you want, bought the most on home media? And I'm like, "All right, Halloween is probably up there for me. Batman is up there. My friend Mike like he's had Halloween on VHS, he's had Halloween He's got a laser disc of it. We there is a we got DVD. You got the Blu-ray of it, and he's got two copies of the Blu-ray of it. I'm like, and I mean, it's like, yeah, I've done the same thing. I, I don't have a laser disc of it, but I'm like, yeah, Halloween I bought several times. Batman I bought several times. I think, like RoboCop, I bought like several iterations of that, like on VHS, DVD, and Blu-ray. But uh, yeah, I mean, so we'll start wrapping it up here, like, because I know we're running a little long here. Um, you mentioned other movies that were not in your top 15. Like, what did not make your cut? Uh, okay, so I'll, I'll go through it quick. The one that just missed it was Friday the 13th Part 6, Jason Lives. Nice. It's my favorite Friday movie because it's just pure ridiculous fun, and I think it's a hoot. I love it. It's Zombie Jason. I love that one. It's my favorite one. Uh, I thought it was interesting that neither of us had a Friday the 13th movie. Um, but that's because I don't... Made a list. I don't think there's I don't think there any of the although I really like the Friday movies I don't think there's a great movie in there at all I don't think any of them are great movies they're They're fun yeah they're fun but there's not like 
a John Carpenter's Halloween or a Nightmare on Elm Street. Like they're just none of them are that good. So um, other ones that the first conjuring uh, Fright Night you mentioned. I love Fright Night. Uh, Halloween H2O because Jamie Lee Curtis gives an amazing performance when she came back to the franchise. Um, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the remake. I actually prefer the remake to the original. So Either. Every, everybody hates me. Uh, what are you going to do? <laughs> uh, I just I think the remake is terrific and the, the original, eh, it's all right. Um, it Follows, we mentioned that. Uh, Dawn of the Dead, uh, Jeepers Creepers. I have, a, I have a very soft spot for the creeper. Uh, drag me to hell sam raimi again i think drag me to hell is a hoot and it's awesome uh john carpenter's in the mouth of madness uh uh totally off the beaten path but but crazy and awesome uh the exorcist the shining i did have the shining on here as as a contender uh peter jackson's the frighteners another one that not enough people have given a chance over the years but you should because it's amazing with michael j fox um poltergeist the wolfman remake with benicio del toro i know it's got its problems but i love it anyway um sleepy hollow with johnny depp which I think is a great companion piece to the Wolfman remake. And then Dracula, the original from 1931 with, uh, with, uh, Bella Lugosi, Frankenstein also from 1931, uh, and Wes Craven's the people under the stairs. Nice. I've actually never seen people underneath the stairs. Oh, it's so good. It's not what you expect, but it's amazing. I, I I've heard good things, but like I have no idea what the idea of it is. So I'm just like I just have to watch it. I actually have a couple of runners up myself. It was a Wes Craven Serpent and the Rainbow. I really dig um, Jaws because it, it, I do consider parts of it hor- horrific and everything. But like you said, it's not a true blue horror movie. Um, John Carpenter's Prince of Darkness was on my list, and that was almost I was really tough trying to keep that off because I really dig that. I mean, yeah, I love cool. that score. I've written so much stuff to just living like that in the fog score. Like I put that on, I put my headphones on. I could disappear for two and a half hours and just typing away because I end up listening to those scores. Um, Scream two was on the list. Uh, Dog soldiers was on my list at one point because werewolves versus it. Like it's like the Marines from aliens versus werewolves. I think where can you can't go wrong with that. Um, what else? Uh, Signs was on the list at one point. But, you know, it's not really horror, but like that's something that gave me nightmares for a long time. I think the James Newton Howard score is wonderful. Uh, I think it's like the last like Mel Gibson performance before he's really go off the deep end and became kind of a scumbag. Um, what else? I think yeah, Suspiria was on my list. Uh, Takeshi Meek's Audition, Japanese horror movie that was on my list at one point because. I think that's a very unnerving movie. Uh, Peter Jackson's uh, Brain Dead, a.k.a. Dead Alive. Um, what else? There was something else. Oh, I wrote it down. But I didn't write it down, but I forgot. Um, crap. I think, yes, it was um, not really a horror movie, but like it's horrific. But it's Night of the Creeps, I really dig. It's not really oh, scary. That, that one's awesome. Yeah. And uh, what was it? Um, Tom Atkins' performance. I mean... I so many I've lost count how many times I've like I picked up the phone just say thrill me just it, just to hear how people respond to that because like they would not expect that or like let's say like like um, good news and bad news good news is your boyfriends are here what's the bad news they're dead and everything like that so yeah 
Um, Trick or Treat was on was on my list at one point because I love anthology movies, and I think it's a if it was a great companion piece to Halloween, I think Trick or Treat is like the True Blue like is all about Halloween with that Halloween three season of the witch I really dig, mm-hmm. but um, I know a lot of people throw rocks at it because of Michael Myers. But I'm like it's it's it wasn't supposed to be called Halloween three. It was supposed to be called Season of the Witch, but marquee value. So yeah, so that is my kind of runner up list, and I can go on and on about it. But um, yeah, any final thoughts you have about this? No, this was super fun. Uh... A lot of movies, but fun to fun to try and figure out what my top fifteen were. Nice, nice. Um, all right. So, Andy, I want to thank you again for being a part of this. No, thank you for the invite. It was fun. No problem. And if you want people to follow you on social media and on your shows, where can they find you? Uh, yeah. So I, uh, as as Tim said at the beginning, I host a couple of podcasts. There's Real Fans for Real Movies or RF for RM. It's where we look at movies past and present. There is Holy Batcast, which is all about Batman and the DC universe. And then now there is Disorder, every Disney film where we're looking at every Disney animated feature in order. Uh, D-I-S-O-R-D-E-R. So you can check out any of those shows wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to follow me on Twitter or on Instagram, it's just my name, Andy DiGenova, A a-N-D-Y-D-I-G-E-N-O-V-A. And that's where you can send your angry tweets about me actually preferring the Texas Chainsaw remake to the original. I'm going to do that tomorrow just to bust your chops now. I hope you're hope you're okay with that. Go for it. Oh, okay, good. Um, well, well, so this, oh, if you want to follow me on social media, you can follow me on Twitter at TimothyRooney2, my Instagram at tbrooney 1012 you can follow, obviously, this podcast on iTunes and leave a five-star review. You can follow on SoundCloud. You can follow my Facebook and YouTube page under the same banner of Through the Lens Productions, where my latest short film, Cash Grab, is up. Did that for the Film Riot uh, Film Noir Monday Challenge. We got a horror movie coming out for the My Annabelle Creation, which is a competition doing for the new Annabelle movie that's coming out next month. And so stay tuned for that, as well as I got another supernatural horror movie that's very conjuring and insidious like that I have in the I have in the gun that I can't wait to make soon. And uh yeah, so I hope everybody's enjoyed this episode of Anything Goes, where we talk about our top fifteen favorite horror movies. Andy, thank you again for being a part of this. My pleasure. Thanks for the invite. No problem. Hope everybody's enjoyed this show and we'll talk to you soon. <laughs>